Sorry, stranger. Welcome to Thug Crowd Radio. Please listen to this important disclaimer in its entirety. All participants of this Thug Crowd Radio episode are characters. None of the stories told during these episodes are based on facts, truth, or reality. All works of fiction displayed during this episode that resemble real-life situations are coincidental and are not meant to serve as guides or tutorials to commit any crimes in any country. Please consult an attorney for local laws and regulations. And as always, trust your inner criminal. Say something. Hello. Hello. Yo. Beautiful. Awesome. Alrighty. One second. Let's jump over here. Got this. Yeah, um, audio is good on the live. Awesome. Cool. Yeah, I'm <laughs> having some. Uh, I was having some issues again with that remote server. One second. Let me switch over my audio. Alrighty. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the crowd. What's up? Hey. <laughs> Yo. Episode 49, which I actually realized I got the episode number wrong um, in my, uh, what's it called, my initial version of the show notes. And uh, yeah, it was pretty, uh, pretty sad (laughs) because we skipped an episode last week. So I thought that we were 50, but how's everyone doing? Good. It's good to be higher. Yeah, you came, had a big long trip. Yeah, I went all the way to uh, Bayside, San Francisco, and RSA, and then came back around to the other side of the planet. 
you know, I um, I ran into a few cool Thug Crowd people. We played a, uh, a real life uh, capture the flag, and the flag was captured. That's sick. That's very cool. <laughs> Hell yeah. Allegedly. Allegedly. They may work on, on anything cool. No. Quickly reflecting, I crossed stuff off of my list of these like scattered post-it notes, but uh, mm -hmm. I did do a backup for a local place, so they have a cloned hard drive in case something craps out, and I got a incoming offer for a new gerb. A gerb? You gonna you gonna take a gerb? I'm with the gerb. All right, all right. Am I low, by the way? Sorry about that, guys. No, you're good. Yeah. Um... yeah. Sorry, I had to adjust some audio levels in the thing. So yeah, I actually have been splitting. I, I figured out the best way to have stable internet to go to the remote stream or the remote server to stream. And um, yeah, I have to keep running back and forth to like do anything on that because um, I have only a small ethernet cable because the other one is stuck in a wall. If it's a smaller ethernet cable, it's more secure, I think, right? Yeah, the longer the wires, the more the uh, NSA can tap. <laughs> There's more surface area, I think. <laughs> it's all about that uh, long-run, high-frequency cross-check. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, it says that not Dan is quiet, so hold on. Let me go raise you up a little bit real quick. Give me one second. It's probably my stuff. Hold on. Let me see if I can turn it up over here. Give me a second. No, you're good. I just uh, I just upped you on the on the server side, so we're all good. Oh, okay. Alrighty. Um, start yelling. Hell yeah. Um, so I'm throwing this into Voiceless Voice here. This is our channel here. Um, so yeah, this is um, this is it. And actually, so I had made this thing. It's supposed to be a PLC ladder editor for uh, Modbus, but I love that there's I like that there's a uh, a little clicky things on the side that you can use to toggle the color, which actually will help me to know where we're at in terms of oh, like good. the shell. I might include that for uh, future use. So you can nice toggle, stuff. change the color from uh, red to green. So good stuff. That's pretty great. Oh yeah. So all right, let's jump into the first story here, which is actually funny because this is from um, Shitty Kids, uh, who is around here sometimes in IRC and Twitter. Um, Pretty interesting here. Um, <clears throat> Japanese police have charged a 13-year-old uh, girl for sharing an unclosable pop-up online. Um, <laughs> and so all it is is just like a, it's like a while loop that just has a pop-up. And that's it. And so they apparently have just classified that as like any other malicious code. Because um, this article here, you know, discusses the precedent for it, basically, which is like the... There's um, some coin coin hive stuff and uh, you know like cryptocurrency like like uh, password dealers and stuff like that and then this this is this is not in the same vein. Oh, oh I thought you were saying that it was a coin hive thing and that she was. Oh like, no, it's, really it's literally <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely not that at all. It's literally just the stupid thing that people just have done forever. Like keep just yeah. the dumbest thing possible. Just like yeah. while loops just never close something. That's 
That's like a staple of learning how to program in any language. Just make something that you just can't close and you have to shut down your computer. To like... <laughs> but if you have a look, like, like with Quantum and all that hard stuff, you know, like all, all of that harder stuff, that they're using like service web service workers, web workers, like all different techniques to have like p persistent background execution. Mm -hmm. you know, and this is a this is a while. Yeah, but isn't this what Goatee used to do? Like I swear, Goatee wouldn't let you close it. Yeah, there, dude. Those kind of tricks used to be. Remember, like the uh, the I am an idiot, you are an idiot one. The one that just like would every time you tried to close it, it would spawn like a million other pop ups. <laughs> that kind of stuff. Like, yeah. that's, like imagine if that was an arrestable offense, and that that one's even worse. This is just a single pop up. You can just kill the process of the browser. Like, it's not like, you know, so like it's the, the more I am an idiot one. So the the I am an idiot one was literally the code was literally like like on window close like spawn two windows of the same like of the same uh current location that's all it was like yeah that was, we're talking like three lines of code on one event like one hook that uh i believe on window close is no longer no longer a dumb event you can use anymore but wow you know mm, you gotta figure there's some way to to mimic it though so, well, they've got a couple of things. There's like on blur, like when you when the window loses focus, or on there's one that's the equivalent of on leave. So if you're going to leave the page while like something is processing, but um, the on window close was different because that was specifically like interaction with the desktop. Huh. Um, it might still exist in some form, but I'm I'm not I don't really write that much um, with JavaScript people, anymore. I think people need to really step it up and and bring that back. Like the yeah. just horrible websites that you just can't get, <laughs> can't get them to well, close. I, I used to have a whole bunch of stuff where you could do window positioning through JavaScript. Oh, so right, yeah. you could set the, uh, yeah, you could, you could literally take like a screenshot of a, of windows XP or, um, you know, windows 98 or whatever. And, uh, then in IE, you'd be able to position it at, uh, so the zero zero of, of the physical desktop would be zero zero of, um, of the actual document not so it would hide the title bar like we would hide all the window controls and it, the whole it would look like a screenshot like on your machine so people would be like trying to interact with like a web page that they thought was that with their desktop but it was just like i love it yeah i, was, I used to love the shit like that but uh i think a shout else to, seems shout to mg is incorporate that incorporate mouse clicks into his next head uh attack <laughs> <laughs> No, you totally can. And what's what's funny too, like there's those kind of things have definitely gone by the wayside. I feel like that's not really a thing people do much anymore. It's kind of weird. Cause like I remember how many how many like screamers did you used to like share to people? You know, like just like scary ass, scary fucking things with like the loudest volume ever. Dude, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea for a Halloween episode, by the way. Or yeah. Next episode when people really aren't expecting it. <laughs> Happy Halloween. Every day is Halloween. Like that's yeah, it's um I actually the first uh the first well actually I was only when I was in school before I got kicked out, I was in this web design class for like three weeks, right? And it was the only computer class I've ever taken. And the only thing that I made in it was a screamer website in Flash. That's and like that was it. And I was nobody else thought it was funny either. It was just like this <laughs> blood curdling scream and then just like a, like an inverted flashing gif of like a of like a girl's like 
scary like ghost face and just like <laughs> oh my god nobody thought it was funny that's a no line, man <laughs> because they also nobody had seen it either because i also had been working on a dummy project and so we were like did like our hello world of like whatever the hell this was and like that was just my website it was just that and it put it on the screen and just like yeah. it was like in the in the big projector and it was the lights were all dim and shit too and yeah it was good stuff so you actually scared the shit out of your class yeah yeah but amazing <laughs> and then that was that was it that was my own that, that's the extent of my computer uh and web design um like uh education I'd say yeah, well, I think it was clearly too as so far I got <laughs> I know how to use div tags I like that's about it um, but yeah, no, it definitely, it, it sucks that like they, they take it this seriously and like, I mean, people get in trouble for this stuff. You hear kids getting in trouble at school for like doing stupid shit. Like it's not even like, like change, except what people we used to do in like high school, like, change like the computer lab homepage to like something stupid, like not even like gore or like anything bad, but like just something dumb, you know, yeah, like, yeah. like you're the man now dog or something like. That's yeah, all, yeah. Hell yeah, YTMND, oh. Yeah. 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 The librarians did not like YTMD though. <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> yeah, they'll ban you. It's Nowadays not... they call the cops on you though. I mean, that's uh, you tampering with a computer. It's a yeah. Exactly. They, just, they they don't see any difference between that and like ransomware for some reason. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, if I was at school, uh, Cain and Abel, Sub Seven, Netbus, like all the things, but Man. I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't at school, obviously. So. <laughs> yeah right yeah exactly you were out oh yeah Walking i was on some throwback the other day trying to do like the php nuke era of embedding a midi into the background of the page to play and just tweaking people out but the current browsers kind of don't handle it but chrome looks like on windows it'll just automatically download the MIDI. yeah so uh doing autoplay for some reason i've heard they were going to bring it back but yeah rest in peace autoplay uh, I think I've got an autoplay site at the moment, just using the audio yeah. tag, but I couldn't use a media. I had to use like an. Yeah, yeah. Really? Uh, it works in Chrome, though? Sweet. Well, I'll check it right now. Hold on. Very cool. Those are good for stores, by the way. Store kiosks. Any place that um, is appropriate oh. to play sounds and stuff. You know what? It doesn't play anymore, but it was. Uh, it used to just play the start of the X Files theme. Yeah, rest in peace. I like. I don't even know if YouTube auto plays anymore. If YouTube.com does, then that means there is a way to do it. But it's probably really complicated. Crazy, probably some crazy whitelist, as we saw with uh, Edge a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, likely. It's, it's the Chromium um, feature. Uh, there's a Chromium feature site that has all these just totally freaking crazy features that they're thinking about implementing. But this was one of them that uh, they went back and forth on and eventually approved. But, like, they're thinking about letting your browser just start Bluetooth scanning the proximity of the area and stuff. Like, there's so many crazy things that but are can you, close. Can you not just use, a like, a like set timeout of, like, you know, um, or, like, on-page load or something uh, to then trigger an audio tag to play surely you can do it with javascript i would imagine javascript yeah but they've they made it hard for some reason and i'm gonna guess it's youtube competition actually 
You know, though, that somebody mentioned in the chat, Lord Parody says um, about embed direct plays. Like you can have an autoplay on um, on a YouTube link. You see that a lot in um, like the deface sites. They'll just have some horrible, horrible music, and and they're just like it's like autoplaying, and it's just you. It's just like a, a one pixel by one pixel iframe from YouTube. I remember that. That still works. Uh, yeah. I'd like to thank my uh, teacher, Mrs. Rothy, at the bottom of the, the Indian defacements. <laughs> They're always my favorite, where they thank their like high school yeah. teacher. Yeah, and hey, also you... don't forget to add me on Facebook. <laughs> Did yeah. you really shout it's out like, your teacher on defacements, dude? Like in uh, so somebody, uh, I've seen a bunch of defacements where they shout out their like their IT teacher, and I'm like, yeah, me and my buddy used to do that. <laughs> Teach me how to do this. Oh, Miss Oprah, we'd be like, yo, <laughs> that <laughs> pro though. Shit, oh, yeah. Bro. Um, but yeah, let's get on to the next story here, um, which is Citrix. So Citrix had discussed a breach of their internal network. And what was interesting about this is that they found out from the FBI. <laughs> and, right. and like, so basically they had described the attack as um, somebody just basically um, so some giant word list, just uh, password spraying and uh, getting a foothold into Citrix and then exfiltrating six terabytes of data for accessing. I don't know. There's not really a distinction between whether they accessed six terabytes or they, they downloaded six terabytes. But still, that's quite a lot of traffic for an internal company to not notice. Yeah. Uh, six terabytes, you know, I don't know. It depends because uh, a lot of Citrix's products um for example zen server obviously if you're looking at the source of zen server that that uh just the the repo for the kernel trees is kind of like huge right um there's probably a lot of a lot of projects like that that they just have massive chunks of data where it's just a dev like git cloning something mm -hmm. so i mean i don't think six terabytes it depends i mean what kind of traffic it was as well like it was really obvious or not like if it's all like SMB traffic and they're just like you know taking like a whole share. Um, yeah, exactly. Like directly to the friggin' di directly to the gateway, like to the WAN. That's that's a bit weird. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Who but knows? I like, wouldn't yeah. doubt it that like there's so people market DLP right data loss prevention crap, but mm -hmm. I doubt even if they had that installed, it would have seen it. And if it did, it was probably an alert that somebody went, "Oh man, this thing again," and they deleted it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to get a little bit more information about this, but I didn't see this. Um, I actually like that they didn't make the distinction between accessed and stole, because it doesn't matter if they, yeah, true. You know, if they saw it, they saw it, it, and then it's up to their I eyeballs mean, whether or not they kept it. Yeah, they could have copied and pasted, you know, relevant uh, files <laughs> or whatever, or, you know, they didn't. Exfil well, like, through a Citrix channel. <laughs> <laughs> through uh through Citrix's remote remote desktop session. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, man. Citrix is a big ass company though. They're part of EMC, right? I mean they were big yeah. way before that. Citrix have been uh huge yeah. in business land since uh, at least before the start of my career. I don't I like they Oh were, yeah. They I've seen this Citrix. What's that, Pico? Uh, Citrix, I think uh, a Zen app server I saw, like, when I did my internship for uh, NT4O house on dial Yikes. I crashed. 
Citrus Wait. was bomb back then, especially before RDP got uh, widely deployed. Citrix was it. Like I don't think there was RDP back then, was there? Uh, I think RDP was kind of maybe it was P- new. I think VNC was definitely around, yeah. but Citrix was the solution where you'd log in um, as your user from any machine, and you'd have your desktop from any machine. Where you'd have the you know the hub and spoke type, um, uh, you know, um, yeah. like mid- was... some some mid range box running a bunch of shit, and then you'd have you'd, a bunch of people would log into it. You know, this was back in the day when it was literally dial up though. Because remember PC Anywhere. Like that worked yeah. over twenty four or fourteen or four <laughs> modems. <laughs> That's craziness. Cisco or Citrix was super easy to set up, but there were there were paid consultants that would come out and get lots of money for it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Citrix they when they purchased Zen, that was basically the end of open source Zen. Like when so the Citrix Zen server, and then there's regular Zen that run is like. Uh, Cubes OS, but um, yeah. I think because Citrix bought so much of the IP, um, it sort of that's when I think I guess that's about the time that KVM started being replaced in um, most uh, distros that are replacing Zen. Crazy. Oh yeah, um, yo, the next story that we have on here, uh, it's kind of old news now, um. This is the um, what's it called? Kidra. Kidra. Yeah. yeah Kidra. <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to also copy and paste <laughs> to the chat at the same time. Um, but yeah, so Kidra was released um to a lot of fanfare actually. A lot of people seem to really dig it. I mean, I, I dig it too. It's pretty good. Um, for something that's free, especially, and especially as an American, our taxpayer dollars paid for Kidra. So. <laughs> We literally, literally, literally bought into this, so we have an obligation to use it. Um, so <laughs> the world's most expensive software license. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Um, so yeah, Gidra came out. It's honestly, I, I, I dig it. It's a pretty good tool. There's, there are some issues with it though. There's, it has an issue. There's a couple of people have noted issues with it, just uh, like recognizing certain files, and so people are trying to. Like people have been writing plugins for it, um, for like Yara and like a bunch of different other tools, um, which is pretty cool um, that they're just being able to write plugins for it. It's just Java, and they've open sourced it and things, um, so people can actually modify it and do what they want. Because um, that was one of the things that I was like kind of wary about was just like a monolithic Java app, and so I was like, is this something that like what what do we do with this? You know, like if there's a, if there's a bug. You know what do we? You know what's the issue? Because I actually one of the things I started playing with with it was they have like an inline um, like image parser, which is like always where things explode. So um, they, it like loads resources from a binary. Um, like say there's like an embedded like GIF or something or a PNG, it'll just it display it can display it inline if there is an embedded resource that is embedded where in memory in this assembly output it would be, which is pretty sick. I think that's an awesome um, thing to do. Um, Wait, but isn't that like a big attack vector? Yeah, absolutely. So I was actually playing with uh, embedding some file. I haven't gotten too much further in it. I just made a stub to be able to just tack on wacky images that I have that I'm seeing what do. But yeah, I'm, um, this is pretty cool. The other thing I really dig about it is that it has a, a really nice um, side-by-side like disassembly to pseudocode output. So you can just, you can like uh, copy functions um, of, of assembly output. And it just goes straight into um, 
like it, it makes pseudocode out of it like right instantaneously right next to it so you don't have to have like some massive listing you just like take what snippet you want and then be able to understand it in context because people obviously doing malware um have some weird tricks to uh obfuscate things so it makes it a bit clearer and quicker makes your code flow uh your flow um to actually disassembling and reversing a lot easier um it also has no idea what to do with any of the binaries that i've made all the elves um <laughs> and so it's actually really funny there's there's a it just it says that there's no elf file or there's no elf header recognized because everything i have is just in the elf header so link to that in here so, i mean the thing with uh so I, i've totally missed all of this because i've been i haven't had access to to actually sit down and play with this for like two weeks um you know at all but like compared to Ida, like do you think it's going to people are really going to switch from what they've been using forever or no I mean, it, honestly, Ida, Ida is, I forget how much Ida is. I've never actually bought it. It's a lot of money. And a lot of people who want to do reverse engineering with a pretty good tool, um, it's definitely a thing that people would probably latch on to, especially now that it's open source and people are already making plugins for it. I definitely see the development environment growing um, because there's already a big mountain of, of work that they've done. So they just have to you know, make their own plugins for it. And probably we'll see something like the way that Burp does it with uh, the Jython um, and writing extensions like that. Um, I see I see it honestly growing a lot more than it is now. I know that a lot of people dig it now, but it's I definitely think that it'll be something that is uh, that is just going to continue to grow. Do you think it's going to um, be something that like completely replaces Ida? I don't think so because I think that like Ida has such a community around it as well, and mm -hmm. they're like the top tier of like disassemblers. Um, as well as Vidari too, but they're the as far as like enterprise sort of things, I feel like people are just gonna rely on it. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it'll get any. I mean, it could surpass Ida, but at the same time, Ida has been under development for a long time by a very dedicated mm -hmm. group of people. So it's, it's just uh, the paywall is so so dang intense. You know, mm -hmm. I think if like it gets you? a good enough following, it could definitely gain some real traction here. So yeah. there was um, some controversy though with uh, it's. That's a remote debug function or something. I yeah, like I said, yeah. I haven't got to play. Um, that was remote code execution by design. I think. Um, I mean, we're just assuming at this stage that that's that's a feature. It's not a bug. It's not a bug door or anything like that, right? That's just the thing that the NSA were like. I don't know. This is like this is useful. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Only be exposed in debug mode. I think though that the the thing that that like the use case for NSA. Um, with that specifically, when I when I saw Hacker Fantastic had, had actually opened up a Git issue, that was the way that I saw it originally. Um, it was that thing seems like a like just the way that they meant to use it. They probably have some sort of centralized infrastructure where they have an instance of Gidra running, and then they just have like thin clients that can connect to it because obviously you don't have to have you know if, if there's a large team of people that's reversing like a very very challenging binary or set of binaries, um, you might want to have everything in a collaborative place and be able to, um, you know, remote in and, and run commands. Or if you need somebody to come in and fix something, it might have that debug port open to then do whatever, you know, we need to do. I mean, so it, it seems like a, like a thing that would make sense for them to do in their environment, but not for like the one-off researcher. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's the same as like remote GDB in the case as well. Yeah. Like if you absolutely if you expose remote GDB, then you expose you know that's that's 
Yeah, like if, that's exactly it. Um, and you find GDB servers on like Shodan. Same with um, probably find some NSA stuff now too. It's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. But um, we definitely don't think it was like a, a bad thing though. Um, uh, yeah, definitely a feature I would think more so than mm -hmm. NSA trying to be the NSA or something. You know. Yeah, they could always just you know now that we know about it though, at least we can block that. But yeah, when I opened it, though, the first thing I did was was um was like monitor all my processes to see what would uh, happen when when I started before I did anything because I didn't want to, and I didn't see anything out of the ordinary. So, but mm -hmm. it's a fucking leak. Who knows? It is a yeah, slight that's, that's... delay before it deploys all that <laughs> time bomb. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the things I thought about straight away with um people calling and an RC and stuff. I was like. We're talking about the NSA releasing a tool. If they're going to release a, a backdoor in something, it's going to be mad more subtle. It's going to be so, like, at, like yeah. they, know, they know how to write backdoors. Like, yeah, they, they, made, they made Eternal Blue. Like, do you think that they're going to, like... <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not going to be like, oh, the deep back went, oh, the RC, oh, blah, blah. Yeah, it's not yeah. that obvious, 100%. Yeah. Maybe we right. can get them to download it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then you just literally you just S trace it, just W getting from paste bin, like <laughs> <laughs> that would be funny. Well, that would honestly be a good prank. It just like says like lol in the paste. Uh, but speaking of malware, um, this is a report that it's something that has been around for a bit that people have been talking about, but it's definitely now that it's getting more attention and it actually. Um, or notice is <clears throat> the Trisis malware. Um, so there's the Triton, Trisis, whatever you want to call it, um, is a malware that is basically targets the safety mechanisms inside power plants and industrial plants um, that would be specifically designed to like blow them up or stop the safety systems from working, like similar to like a Stuxnet kind of thing, but it's more um, targeted towards shutting off like you know, safety valves for pressure and like reactors and things like that. Um, and so this is a thing that is just out there and it's been around for a while, um, but it's it's slowly growing in the way that it's deployed. And um, it's pretty frightening actually to think about the amount of, of people that are making malware similar to, again, our taxpayer dollars hard at work, Duxnet and other things um, from our, our pals that, that um, attack these kind of things and these are these are things that are specifically designed to cause physical damage and loss of life these are not like you know ransomware some unclosable pop-up it's like literally like we're trying to fuck you up and so it's mm -hmm. scary to think that this is getting more and more of a common thing and it's just spreading yeah it's it especially this one because i'm actually not sure what the attribution is thought to be for triton but stuxnet was specifically intended at least to be used as a de-escalation device this one doesn't appear that way it appears like it's pretty uh kind of malice in nature i just mushed mouth that but it's malicious in nature right so it's mm -hmm. not a not that good of a thing so if you're at all looking for jobs and stuff and you're sort of in the new new realms you, you haven't messed with before check out um ICS and power companies that are very fun to work at. Absolutely, yeah. I definitely think that we need to have, it's it's good that we're, so we're going to be playing tonight our interview with Hacks for Pancakes, um, who talks a lot about this kind of stuff. She 
works actually for Dragos, who was quoted in this yeah. uh, article here. Um, there's a lot of, of stuff that goes on behind the scenes that we don't ever get to really see or hear about. And, you know, only to hear the little smidgens of it um, as it comes to news. But there's a lot of real serious shit that happens in the, in the industrial security space. Um, and it's it's something that I definitely think that we need more people on with because there's yeah. there's a lot of it like there's so much there's so many you know controllers and legacy software and plcs and stuff that people haven't touched in 20 almost 30 years in some cases and um yeah. they're just there they're piddling along and if anything happens to it everyone so much just breathes on it the wrong way it explodes and so like right. we, we need to get more hackers into that space to be able to like actually look at it and be like yo like let's not have this on telnet like on you know some open port yeah. Just to give you an example, like I was literally one of maybe three people on a team that uh, supported a large, large portion of the southern U.S. for a while. Yeah. Like one of three. That's mm -hmm. a like three people. <laughs> That's yep. not a lot. That's and like, fine. Yeah. You just need to have more teams on it. You need to have more people on it and more, more funding towards getting people like towards subsidizing those kinds of workers too like getting people into those spaces because like they might not even pay that well and it's like oh i don't want to screw around with this just look at some stupid you know boring valves all day but those boring valves are what you know make make stuff not explode and like destroy yeah. the entire state so <laughs> but i, th I yeah. think like so this particular example versus say stuxnet like stuxnet was um you know designed specifically around a configuration of plcs it seems like this particular piece of um, malware is uh, a little bit more ubiquitous. Like it's it's looking for oh. a less specific, or I mean, Just maybe there is a very any kind of PLC though. It's not really looking for power company stuff. Yeah, like maybe maybe it is, and we don't know about it. And maybe the people who are doing the investigation are, are looking for you know the exact target it was meant for or maybe it's just some guy wrote a poc like or wrote a poc mm -hmm. and turned a poc into a piece of malware that's now spreading but it is catch up on train train sounds interesting if we could get a sample that could be a fun project it's a scary escalation man like ever since stuxnet and i think the samples got released for stuxnet right and ever since then mm -hmm. though, man the escalation Prior yeah. to Stuxnet as well, there was uh, the Russian that Russian uh, hydroelectric plant where the the turbine blasted through a bunch of stories and killed like twenty people. From Stuxnet? No, there's no way. No, no, Stuxnet. no, not Stuxnet. It was a, it was a, it was a, a, an attack in oh, like Ukraine and uh, between Ukraine and Russia when they were going after each other on the cybers. Um, not that yeah. I don't know. It was um. Not for, yeah. What's the name of the like uh, Sayano? I can't even say it. It's a hydroelectric oh, dam in Russia. Oh, sorry. Seventy-five people were killed, and it was a forty-ton, like forty tons of oil into the river and stuff like. But basically, this, the the turbine went out of control and blasted through a bunch of stories. So it was it was a pre Stuxnet cyber attack. Yikes! Wow. When was this? Two thousand and nine. Oh, I missed it. Two thousand and eight. I'll uh, I'll link it into Voices Voice. Yeah, yeah be good. About it, yeah. Uh, the whole the whole uh, ICS SCADA, uh, especially on the power grid, is like I don't think people realize that power is the 
pretty much the genesis for everything else in society and critical infrastructure. So you can have telecommunications. That's pretty important to us. Hospitals are pretty important. Um, water, drinking water is pretty important. All that stuff's really important, but it all runs on electricity. Like the pumps at the power company run on electricity. The ele- uh, hospitals run on electricity. Like everything eventually comes back to one or two main critical pieces of infrastructure and power is one of them and the the fragility of it is it it will freak you out like if you really start digging into it and realize holy jesus this this is how does this stay together this long actually right yeah, it's definitely those kind of things are are something that I think is so important, and it actually makes me want to like talking to Hacks or Pancakes made me want to get more into that space, um, for sure, because it's it's like it's terrifying. <laughs> it's terrifying to think of anything like that happening like anywhere near me, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've considered going back into it. It's it's fun stuff. It doesn't. It's not glorious pay though. That's the unfortunate part. It's it's not quite as bad as government pay, but really don't expect it to be high paying. No, mm-hmm. not at all. That's surprising. I thought they'd make like the most. I made. You, you think, I made, right? I made under a hundred thousand a year. Jeez. Fuck! Am I in the wrong industry? <laughs> um, <laughs> it depends on, on what that means to you. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um. I definitely think that definitely we should explore that more and encourage people who are listening to do that as well. Um, but yo, so then uh, keep moving on with the topics here because we're uh, yeah, we're gonna start at ten thirty. Oh, can I let me let's just add one really quick thing on that sure. part? People were uh, having a quick conversation on Twitter about uh, hiring juniors and hi- instead of just hiring seniors all the time. Mm-hmm. Power company is the first place that I saw juniors getting hired on the reg. Oh, cool. So that's a little piece of advice for you guys. If you're at junior sure. level, check it out for sure. Oh yeah, good stuff. Um, well, it's so the new one here. Um, it's pretty interesting. Um, reading this white paper and pretty sweet. It's called Spoiler. It is a uh, a new vulnerability um, in Intel processors that has to do with uh, speculative execution. And not only is it speculative execution, but it's more of speculative reading of um, memory. And so the whole uh, like architecture of this exploit ha- has to do with being able to predict which uh, branch is going to access what memory. Um, and so we have the you know virtual and physical memory and the mapping from virtual to physical um, is where this thing is trying to determine where that actually is and read from there. Um, and so it's uh, pretty interesting though, this whole, um paper that I definitely want to finish reading because it's pretty interesting. It goes over it's it's related to like Spectre and Meltdown. Um specifically targets uh memory mappings, which is interesting. Because that, that's you know obviously there's gonna be a, a point where everything on your disk is going to be or everything in your memory is going to eventually be mapped to somewhere physically. And so in that process um you can actually read um and determine which where it's being written to and read it before it gets protected. Um, is this annoying anybody else? The fact that Sorry. this keeps going out? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know why Intel isn't doing shit. I mean, I know they said that they can or something, and they're not really addressing it. Like, they tried for a little bit, but they came out and said, like, hey, sorry, it's hard or some shit. I don't remember. 
Yeah, so yeah, they said that expected meltdown, but with with this one with spoiler, um, it says that uh, <laughs> like Mac OS, well, because it's ARM ARM is affected as well, not just Intel, and mm. Mac OS and iOS have already been have already have released mitigations. So I think that's a huge difference, but like when comparing to Spectre and Meltdown, while okay. the core, like while the core might be the same, like the like the root cause is still related to specu speculative execution. It looks like that this one is uh, mitigatable at you know a uh, a higher level than uh, having to you know uh, create a new microarchitecture. Yeah. The problem with a lot of this stuff is, I mean, if you look at if anybody's ever looked at the entirety of the x86 uh the intel programmer manual which is like five thousand pages long um it there's it goes into a lot of detail um on the first section like section a of the different um like architecture improvements that they added and it's insane to think that since the mid 70s they've been developing this architecture and they've just been putting code on similar to the way that microsoft does it where they have to have backwards compatibility and uh, they'd also try to plan for you know the future. And so there's just so much involved in it. I can't even imagine what it looks like, what their design files look like um, for a new processor. But as they try to speed up the development of it, it definitely, like, it's just legacy code in a lot of cases. And it's, it's, it's hard to implement something new without breaking something else. Yeah, buddy, let me get them gerbers. <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to know how, how big and crazy those are. Those are absolutely out of control. Dude, I, I, I just, I think I've resigned myself to that. I'm never going to fully understand that stuff. I, <laughs> I just, I really don't think I will. I don't think many people actually fully understand. I think that a lot of the times for the actual micro-architectural stuff, it's a lot of the times teams of people that are developing specific parts of it, and they have to, you know, make sure that it all goes together. Because it's not just like one person, like, Joey Intel or whoever is just sitting there making making x86 processors from scratch in like Verilog. It's like Oof. it's like very specific um like stuff that has to be brought together. And those teams obviously are gonna you know develop new pipelines. I mean pipelines and speculative execution have been out for a long time, uh, and they just get more and more um, efficient in quotes um, by I mean faster, not necessarily efficient, um, but the you know, as they try to race against other manufacturers and processor architectures, they're trying to roll out similar stuff to what other people are planning and doing, and it just becomes a huge shit show of, like, it's the same thing as when people release, like, an app without putting, you know, taking out the developer key in an accident or, like, in debug mode. Like, it's similar stuff. But it's on a hardware thing that's very difficult to change. I think it's kind of like one of those things where, uh, you know, like the super autistic kid who builds like a like a 32-bit ALU in Minecraft using redstone for like hours and hours on end. And, he's, and then like one day he starts working for Intel, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. doing, it, doing it their whole life in order to like that very specific thing working yeah. on, like rather than as opposed to somebody who's, you know, they've learned all this stuff and then they're like, oh, now I'm going to switch to like the lowest level of CPU design. Yeah. And every single time you look at it, it gets lower and lower and lower and lower. And like nobody is sitting there putting together like the transistors, like all that stuff is already like made and abstracted away in a way that they can just use it. Like it's not like you're not making like logical gates like <laughs> on, on like, silicon. Like no one's doing that anymore. There's too many. Like there's way too many gates, way too many things, and there are 
very specific types of gates that have been manufactured to do specific things. It's just, it's, it's crazy. It's honestly a huge space and it's, it's, I think it's cool that people are exploring it, but then it just gets scarier when you see like the skeletons that are actually the closet. Yeah, I think the guys who are the guys who are making the Lego blocks, like you know, they're only making the Lego blocks. You know, it, um, what's the the new electrical component? Or oh, the newest electrical component was like I think the thermistor, and it was like a a resistor that is has a variable resistance but remembers its resistance. And yeah, then, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, so like the guy who's designing that is not designing the RAM chip that it's eventually going to go into so that your machine remembers its state of what your operating system was when you shut down, blah, 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 blah. He's just like making the smallest thing and then that's getting used by other people that's getting used by other people, so on and so forth, you know? Yeah, a lot of stuff like that. It's, just the, the, it's the same thing as supply chain. It's just, you know you don't really control what people are doing with it in beforehand and then if something has to change in the downstream it just becomes like a a left pad of the processor world um <laughs> the left pad of the processor world yes um yeah i definitely would read the white paper i'm gonna definitely read it too uh i finished reading it because i got down to the i got past all the background and everything i was like shit, i'm just gonna read this but uh the next one we have on the list here uh Surprise, surprise, vulnerable Docker hosts are actively being abused in crypto campaigns by people exploiting the wrong flaw from uh, last month. Um, so if anybody missed it, the uh, RunC flaw in Docker uh, allows uh, people to, through a malicious package, through malicious uh, Docker images, be able to load pretty much whatever the hell they want to um, and overwrite your RunC binary, backdoor it, do whatever, and just do whatever they want as root on your host machine. Um, and well, so people are using those to just mine cryptocurrency, obviously. I think, uh, is that one on bleeping computer? I think uh, the show note might be out of date, but that's crazy. Uh, so are we talking big, uh, like, big places yeah, like, that are still vulnerable to it? Uh, I mean, yeah. It, so with... There's uh, a lot of stuff is on AWS. It's showing here. There's, there's almost 4,000 that have this port open. Um, wow. And then the, yeah, there's a couple more that have another ports open. I mean, basically, people are, are using or exploiting these Docker daemons like remotely. And I mean, who knows where these AWS servers are? Like, who knows like what their yeah. actual function is? The um, other thing with the AWS servers is they, these are not the EC2 container service, servers. These are just EC2 services that, pe that people are running like uh, Docker on. Because uh, the EC2, EC2 container and the GCP, like Kubernetes clusters and stuff, they're, they're already patched. They've been patched since the last zero day. Like they're, they're done. Okay. But um, th these are companies who, for some reason, are running um, their own infrastructure on top of other people's infrastructure that stuff like it's all oh man i think it's got to be a generational thing or a laziness thing i don't know what it is but docker uh kubernetes all of it i'm just like i don't know somebody uh we could pay somebody right somebody will know how to do that yeah yeah i don't i i've played with docker before a little bit uh at least and so i, I kind of understand that that's uh almost just root, uh trooting your environments, right? Or putting a... Yeah, in like C groups, there's a bunch of stuff like that. Implementation goes down. Um, like there's, it's, 
It's interesting. Like the way that they, the, the, the reason that this even works is because of UID mappings in, uh, in containers. Uh, basically, if your root is mapped to UID zero in your container, it's then mapped to UID zero on your host machine. Um, and so then by overriding service container, you're allowed, you're basically able to just get root. Oh, so it's escaping. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. So, yeah, that's but yeah, cool. people are clearly using it for the intended purpose of this, which is to mine cryptocurrency. <laughs> uh, so pretty interesting. But yeah, it's, it definitely sucks. Uh, it, it's hard to also, if you have something critical running in Docker and you're not DevOpsing the Docker, <laughs> you're just using it the same way that you would have that, used yeah, it. So if you're going to run that shit on patch, make sure it's not in an <laughs> auto-scaling group. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. Like that. It's just, it's like, I can, I know that the, the, the patients of this for some people are probably real shitty the same way that you can't turn off something else. Like it's just, yeah, it happens. Yeah, and then well, like, have if you notice, like, even if you don't have CloudWatch turned on and you have like the, the just like regular AWS stats, if your CPU is at a hundred percent all the time, like, please. Or don't. Please don't. <laughs> Slap keys as fire hose in front of it. You'll be okay. Right. Put some more CPU in there. Just means it's keeping it lit, fam. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it's turning out those coins. So uh, here's another surprise. Surprise. Uh, <laughs> WordPress accounts for ninety percent of all hacked CMS sites uh, last. Wow, that's a huge um, number. Jesus so yeah. So much of it. There's actually a pretty cool breakdown of of uh, malware um, or hacked websites. That's where a bunch of them are just backdoors and then malware, SEO spam, and half of it is for SEO spam. I mean, that's a huge thing. Mm. This is from uh, yeah. Caitlin's article. Is he doing yeah. that? Yeah. Well, like, yeah. Uh, but Caitlin does some good articles. I like him. The uh, the one of the things about SEO as well, and and this type of attack is generally it's like black SEO, right? Yeah. So like, it's all about getting your competitors off Google. Like it, it, everybody knows about SEO at this point where it's like, Oh, I want to be Google number one for this. But a huge part of that is making sure that whoever's Google number one becomes Google number two or yeah. hits page two or whatever. So black SEO is a very, um, well, as again, it's really well known in the communities that are aware of it. But in the communities who like, like if you go to a company and be like, hey, I want you to do my SEO, they're going to be like, oh, okay, no problem. Whereas black SEO are going to be like, right, WordPress comments, we're going to put in their links to porn. We're going to put in their links to like anything sketchy that Google will frown upon. And mm -hmm. then all of a sudden, you know, they're going to be knocked down the list. And I mean, I think that's, that's a huge part of like, that's probably maybe half of um, mm -hmm. true SEO that people don't, don't take into, into account. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's super big because it, it, it would be fun to have uh, to mess with that stuff, right? But then you end up penalizing yourself. So, yep. Um, yeah, there's a ton of stuff like that. You just see like random, just weird spam and just comments. And uh, yeah, I've <laughs> seen a lot of that. It's just annoying. Yeah, and also using the, the pingbacking, the pingback methods and, and stuff as well, where, you know, if you've already black SEO'd, uh, you know, you've got bad comments on one site, but a, a second site is moderated, you know, you can have a, a ring of sites that also um, reference the article. And then 
those links will be can be embedded into those templates and all of a sudden like that one site's now amplified into 10 sites then google is like going oh these all link together that's a ring like I, i'm not exactly 100 percent up on google's current search met like search engine optimization you know rules but no, yeah you're definitely the, right though yeah the, the fact that they're all linked and you've got one black seo and now you're starting to drop like all these other things that are linked you know i think luckily for purposes of like diy black seo i think if you do it smart and not too loudly you can get away with it because there's people that are just doing insane really obvious spam sites like oh buy, man buy dick pills stuff like that but yeah, hack uh, forums like that's what they that's what that's that's hack forums right it, all right <laughs> i'm gonna sign up and check it out just to make sure um, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know, like, like Black Hat World, what are these sketchy other websites that I don't ever want to? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I've seen the, especially on the the unpatched uh, CMS sites, like they'll just dump insane. Like they're not even words; they're 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 camo case crap for uh, for buying them dick pills. Yeah, and some of the things as well that uh, make a, a comment really bad is when, like, you look at a comment and they'll have attempted to embed an A tag for HTML or something like that, and it's failed. Um, that's actually negative SEO as well. Mm. I wonder because it's a bad markup. I wonder if it wouldn't be a good idea to to put uh, the idea out there to oh, what are ways to do it? What are ways to raise your SEO without breaking the rules? And then, uh, yeah, that would be the way to do it, right? Tell InfoSec and then, Twitter you're unhackable. And, yeah, yeah, really, right? But then <laughs> make it meme-worthy. I don't know. That's an idea. Definitely wanna, you definitely want to hit up some guys from Digital Gangster, and they'll tell you all the things that you never <laughs> wanted to know. <laughs> right. One of my favorite things, I just was trying to find it. Um, <laughs> I remember the other day or a couple months ago, I found a uh, in a WordPress comment um, on some like weird page. There was just a uh, a web shell that was uploaded as a comment, but it just didn't render because it's it's a comment on PHP. It's not like you're injecting code into it. So it was just like web shells by Mr. Secret like 39 like and it's, like in a comment on like an auto detail thing. I'm like you wasted you whatever exploit you had to just draw a web shell in a comment. Mm. Yeah, but I mean, if you Google the web shell, right, you Googled somebody's like terrible, like made in Romania web shell. Yeah. 30 lines long yeah. and you paste it into a comment box. It doesn't get passed, but that's still negative content for like, for the purpose of black SEO. That's it true. doesn't have to say dick pills or whatever. It's going to be like, oh, this is this site serving web shells. Like, yeah. Wait, when you say black SEO, uh, I might be misunderstanding. Do you, do you mean black SEO is in uh, penalized? You're penalized for it? Yeah, you're purposely penalizing a oh. site from being ranked so that you can take down the competitors while you raise yourself. Oh, word. Okay, I was being an idiot. Gotcha. Oh, no, it's good. It's good. Yeah, like linking to malicious or inappropriate materials. Hmm. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, there's a bunch of different ways to do it. People play dirty, and it sucks. Um, yep. But, yo, so the next story that we have on here, we're going to have a few more minutes. Um, this is the FTC uh, fining TikTok and Musical.ly, or Slash Musical.ly, uh, $5.7 million for child data privacy violations. And this is interesting because they there's not really, like, 
people don't really get into too much trouble for this kind of thing. What they specifically wanted them to do was they the the purpose of the whole charge was because they they had people you know as young as 13 on the app um not being basically sandboxed into a more like a like a like to only have people their age basically be shown because tiktok is used by a ton of people and it's like there's like weird shit that happens on it obviously we have a tiktok where you can search thug crowd um but so there's like weird shit like people you know obviously like child predators and then just people who just post like weird sexual or violent content um that is just in line in the app and it's just like a video you know like it's a video that might use like some audio of a song we like so then they just get exposed to it that way um and so what hit or miss i guess yeah exactly when you hear that song it's catchy you're like oh who else is using this and it's just some like weird shirtless old guy like in like some, like you know you're just like of course it is. i don't know like why why this shouldn't be something that like a 13 year old kid should have access to and so the thing is though is that there have been tons and tons of other websites that have so, had similar issues i mean like look at youtube like facebook like so many different websites where you're 13 but yeah you go on it and there's just random weird shit that you probably shouldn't be seeing it's like it's yeah. uh it, it, it's a part of I don't know it's a part of the internet realistically I mean, exactly yeah but this is literally happen. they're getting literally an episode of of Silicon Valley this is the episode where they have uh the what's it called pod pop yeah oh, they have God. a chat room and they don't uh filter out the under thirteen crowd so they had a copa violation <laughs> which is actually what this is yeah oh, it is yeah uh, life yeah. imitates yeah, art sometimes this is actually the largest monetary settlement in a copa case according to the article. It's yeah, aimed at users at young users under the age of thirteen. I'm almost positive you can't download this app uh, on the app stores without being thirteen, though. Can you? I mean, is it actually a, uh, aimed at kids? How, how old do you have to be to be on the app store? I, I'm pretty sure it's thirteen plus. Yeah, I mean, they're probably right? assuming. I mean, like, I think it's there's 13. a rating system, and then there's a certain age to set up your own account with Apple. Oh, and there's a parental control as well. Right, true. But and then, like, you can delegate some access somehow. I think. So, but these people don't have that. Every site I sign up to these days, it has a thing where it checks if you're 13 or older. Yeah, I mean, and there's has- there's tons of of ways that people try to do this, but then it, it's it all comes down to like if you're using your parents' iPad to use it because they use TikTok, you know, or like they whatever, like. There's so many different scenarios where younger people get on it, but it's just it's getting harder and harder to police those things. Like, I mean, like, the, like there used to be a time where you had to like enter your birthday or whatever, like, and then people would be honest for some reason about that, and then just like be sandboxed to whatever. Oh but like <laughs> it, now, like, there's literally like like infants that use like iPad. Like you see yeah, like dude. YouTube comments that are just gibberish because it's just babies, just like oh finger, like, yeah, and that's buried in the TOC. <laughs> Oh my yeah, God. There's, it's like, so there's videos of kids that will like take their parents' phone and like hold it up to their thumb and then like on it at night. Yeah. You guys remember Wait, so... like when you'd sign up to a forum like PHPB or fucking Beagle mm-hmm. and whatever, and there'd be a tick box like, I am 13 years older. Like, dude, I was doing that when yeah. I was 10. I was like, hell yeah, yeah. I'm 13. Who the, who the hell doesn't click that? Do yeah. they even what? have that, you? Uh, when you signed up for TikTok? Um, I, I don't ask. remember. I don't remember because I well, I mean, I always put my birthday as April twentieth, nineteen sixty nine, for the Thug Crowd accounts. So 
I, I don't know. So we're we're like we're like almost fifty on there. So we didn't really get any. Uh... <laughs> but but the thing is, I also still see lots of young kids when I scroll through the feed, and I'm like, why? Like I don't like I want to see the old biker people and the cops who are who are doing TikTok when it's supposed to be yeah. like catching criminals, not like some like little kid who doesn't know how to use a phone, like this blurry thing, just like in like their lunchroom, like. But it's weird because then that's on there, and that's something mm. that is possible for other weirdos, and people have gotten in trouble for that too. And so it's just like a huge fucking mismatch where you get people who just have unfiltered access to be able to shoot videos of themselves doing God knows what, and then older people who just love that and they want to just yeah, pray, yeah, fuck yeah. it up, like. And so they're trying to make it so that the kids are going to be sandboxed into their own. Um, environment basically where if you're younger then you'll stay younger and like there's, there's actually a lot of popular tiktok songs that people like lip sync to that are about like if you're under 18 like don't follow me kind of theme and so like it's i see that other people see it as a problem too and i mean i don't know it's just like there definitely needs to be some sort of segregation because it's just weird like you'll see like interspersed between like a couple of kids like like planking or doing some other stupid meme dance and then in the middle of that it's just some like like weird like cougar trying to just like lick her lips into like the camera <laughs> like some, like shirtless like cop with like his badge on like a chain and you're just like this shouldn't be juxtaposed together <laughs> yeah yeah I, the, ki- the kids are gonna always flock somewhere though so i i don't know i kinda i kinda i get what you're saying and i i know that so to me it boils down to the parents right Mm-hmm. Have a responsibility to protect their freaking kids but i get that these days it's really hard to do so you need you need other things to enforce it absolutely but at what point should we continue finding businesses because kids clicked on the wrong thing that they lied mm-hmm. you know i i find it kind of they must have done something fucked up like tiktok must have really screwed something else up yeah unless they just were what can you do as a business to try and stop kids from wanting to use your service well you don't want to right like yeah right off off the record all these businesses would admit freely that yes we having users of any kind is better than having no users yeah you just have to associate yourself with linkedin and no kid will touch it Sign with your LinkedIn or your Pinterest account. <laughs> yeah, Pinterest is another one. But yeah, no, it, it's definitely a, an issue that a lot of companies are facing, and it, it's hard. I I honestly don't know any good solutions besides, again, yeah, LinkedIn might be the only solution, but that's not that's, that's not going to be like the <laughs> golden ticket for every single app developer. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's tons of stuff again. I mean, people obviously, if they want to get access to content, it's out there. And they know how to get to it. And there's just obviously always going to be weird people who are going to upload like just bizarre shit onto whatever platform so little kids can see it. Mm-hmm. And it, it sucks. The, the fucked up thing is that there's, there are literally, I guarantee you, a few kids listening to this show right now. Yeah. And like they're all over Twitter. They're everywhere because they're kids. They mm-hmm. exist, right? And yeah. they want to do fun stuff. Sounds like TikTok's sort of fun. So they're gonna flock there same with snapchat same with insta like all these places there's yeah it's unavoidable i guess tiktok doing the whole segregation thing is interesting but that's just inviting oh my god it is totally inviting 
the that's like a pedo dream come true. Yeah. Oh, just make my age sixteen, so I only fifteen uh-huh. year olds. Okay. Yeah. Oh, this is great. Yeah. Right. Like hey, these enhancements are amazing. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah. It's it definitely the internet being as accessible as it is is definitely both a blessing and a curse. Yeah. Yeah. How did Foursquare address that issue? I'm not sure if they had it to a large extent, but I'm sure they had instances of kids using it. I think they made their service so boring that it fucking shut down. <laughs> God damn. Yeah, really Shit. dusted that one off. Foursquare. <laughs> yeah. I actually um, don't know what they did. Do you think that a part of the responsibility should be on the people that are teaching developers how to make apps? Because, like, nowadays, like, you can go anywhere and learn how to, like, shit out some Electron or, like, uh, whatever the fuck framework app now. Should we maybe also be having, like, philosophical discussions about software development and telling people, like, hey, this is a problem you're going to run into? I honestly think it's too new of an issue. I mean, think about how many people now have smartphones and how many they did five years ago like people who are senior developers now who have been you know leading these projects making these companies they didn't have this kind of issue before i mean like remember when instagram was just for like iphone and stuff like that like remember when like a ton of different applications were like very small user bases because they targeted like people with like the nicest phones now everybody has like everything like everybody has a smartphone like even little little tiny children and so like the fact that it's become so ubiquitous in the past few years is just like it makes it harder and harder and there's even stuff like like um like how facebook has a subsidized internet where they sometimes facebook is the only is like is free while other internet is not and like that that opens up so many people to be able to use that there's like partnerships to be able to allow people onto certain platforms for a subsidized rate in their data plans and like there's so much shit like that that's going to continue to grow as companies try to make deals to get more users to get more ad revenue i think that it's going to continue to grow and it needs to be addressed but it's definitely not something that people had to consider a few years ago yeah, i think yeah. uh one way to to sort of um verify identities which is currently used as i know that there's ways around this um some very interesting ways that i won't burn people's methods but um linking to google uh, linking to like google accounts or oauth and stuff like that um and exposing like you know because to create a google account generally these days you have to have it tied to a phone number um if you have it tied to a phone number it's tied to a person um certain things where you have to verify that you have a bank account and that you you know, that you have to make uh, like a $1 transaction or something like that um, and then prove that you own the bank account using a, like a reliance method. So there are mm. different ways like that can tie a, a, an account back to a person. And then that doesn't stop somebody picking up someone's phone. It doesn't stop somebody making an account through an nefarious method that, that circumvents these things. But it's just a, it is one way that people can start, you know, well, u- utilizing things that already exist. Okay, let's talk about this for a second though, because that AA bill, I think it's it's coming, it's rubbing off on you, man. I'm just giving you shit. But <laughs> yeah. you know, the, from a privacy perspective, and being a kind of one of these diehard privacy people, I I it's just an erosion of that, and and there's this kind of quandary or whatever that for to have a completely kind of open and anonymous internet or the ability to be anonymous on the internet it comes with great things and it comes with terrible things 
and some of the terrible things are things like uh like like kids being exposed to disgusting people on TikTok. However, there also definitely is that personal responsibility of parents to keep their kids away from that content. And if your child is five years old, it probably should not have their own cell phone that has TikTok on it. Call yeah, me crazy, I, but that's fucking insane. I definitely agree that like anon- uh, being anonymous online is definitely somebody's cho- is like it's your choice. Like you, you don't have to. Uh, you know, especially with OAuth towards Google, right? That's just giving more user data and more ad revenue and all that shit towards Google. I'm just saying that like, it's the, you know, off the top of my head, it's a method that may work to to limit stuff. However, uh, like I said, there's definitely ways around it. And anybody who wants to get around it, um, anybody who has the mildest of technical skills um, isn't isn't very concerned um, by creating those things, you know. One of the scary things, too, is the people that are the worst of the worst predators out there are are tending to now be the most technically advanced because they've been pushed into this underground kind of area where they have to know how Tor works really well and stuff like that. Yeah, how steganography works and shit. Yeah, yeah. So they're getting really effing good. And if we're creating these these kind of safe zones for kids we're creating just a, a, a breeding ground for uh, pedos to infiltrate. And that, that seems like a pretty scary idea. I really, I think this is going to end up being our generations, uh, Philip Morris and in, in cigarette industry. I, I really hope, I really hope that like, because like, that's what one thing I guess we've identified in this conversation is, you know, by creating the space for kids, you create the space for, you know kid predators but you got to remember that the predator of like the, they're, they're not the top predator the predator is uh, their predator is law enforcement right so i feel like if it's it's something that's identified by law enforcement it might be a way you know it might be the honey trap to 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 lure in those uh okay so the the children are in danger which they're going to be anyway so now the law enforcement go like, right, well, now we just have a big corral of, of all the pedos. Let's just go smash them all. Let's kick all their doors in. Yeah. I don't know, man. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a hard thing. Yeah, yeah, seriously. It, it's just, it's too bad that this is, this is one of those areas of, of crime stuff that irks <laughs> me. And like, it really bugs me, but it's something that we're always going to have to deal with. And uh, minimizing it and teaching your kids what's right and what's wrong. Like teaching your kids that, hey, somebody, some old fucking freaky guy approaches you or does anything, uh, report his account and tell me about it. Like, mm-hmm. like I remember one of the one of the things I, I remember being on ICQ back in the day and I was, uh, I actually had my age listed, um, but not my name or anything like that, you know smart enough at least not to do that your real age yeah i had my real age on my at one point yeah and i remember getting messages about like somebody said they had hard nipples or something and i was like and their (laughs) their their age was set to like my age like they were set to like the same age and i was just like oh but you know no but i yeah but i didn't know at the time i was naive at the time i i didn't realize because like i was quite you know on i was on the internet quite young and Mm. i was just like 
like we were talking we're talking maybe 90 this is probably 98 or something and i was 97 maybe and i was just like i don't know why you're telling me about your nipples like i don't get it and then i just like closed the dm and that was the end of that but that was definitely a predator (laughs) like like, thinking back predator you know the reason I was laughing as you're telling this story, I'm like recalling all the times because I did the same stupid thing. Like it said, it said 15 or 16 or whatever on my profile, and so yeah. obviously tons of creeps are just sending effed up stuff to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. When I was like 16, it was chat roulette that was like the pitfall of. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Fucking uh, Omegle. <laughs> Hot dog or no? Omegle, that too. Hell yeah. Um, yo, we should get into the interview, though, with uh, or the recorded interview. Um, we should shell this conversation for later, though. It's an interesting one. Um, yeah. We can maybe have Hacker Parents Part 2 one time, because this is definitely an interesting topic that we need to uh, definitely discuss more and possibly be able to even come up with some ways for people to educate their kids, because it's, it's a hard conversation to have. And it's hard because parents also sometimes don't exactly know how to express it without getting mad. And that's a, that's a huge thing. When parents don't know how to like say, I'm doing this because I, I love you and I care about you, not because I want to take away your you know hit or miss Fortnite dance 2019 compilation songs. Um, so, but yeah, um, so I'm going to go start this interview, though. Um, it's a pre-recorded interview we did with uh, Hacks for Pancakes, and it's really awesome. She said a lot of really cool stuff. Um, so we'll all be listening here on the stream, um, like through Twitch. So uh, if anybody has any questions or comments, just throw them in the chat, um, either on Discord or on Twitch, and we'll be here. So I'm going to go start that right now. And uh, we'll be back, I guess, at the end, right at the end of it, um, to say bye. So thanks, everybody, for hanging out. Crowd. Um, can we start out by having you tell us who you are and what your background is for our listeners? Hey, my name is Leslie. I'm otherwise known as Hacks for Pancakes. I work at a company called Dragos and we do industrial control system security. Um, personally, I do primarily digital forensics and incident response. And I've been doing this for about, well, security for about 11 years and IT for about 20 years. And I tweet a lot. <laughs> That's a lot of time to be in IT. Uh, do you want to tell us how you got into this space? Um, oh, man. I have the most like prototypical how I got into security story. So I hate it because like everybody's like, but I'm a bartender. How will I ever get into it? Like, And I have that story where I was the kid who learned to code at like seven and I got hired as a programmer when I was like 15 and it was a different time then and uh, thought I was going to make it big. Then the dot-com bubble burst and um, I had to enlist (laughs) good times. And so I worked on uh, backshop aircraft computers for a while. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've I've done a lot of stuff in the tech space. I've been all over the place and I uh, moved into networks. I enjoy networks a lot. I have a degree in network engineering, and I think circuits and wires are super fun. Um, never really like programming, so um, I always wanted to do security, but it was uh, it was a difficult route. I wanted to do forensics, and nobody even knew what it was. So, like, it was like 
there was like three forensics jobs in Chicago and it was this kid and nobody wanted to talk to me. So it took me a long time. That's awesome. So I don't know if you want to like open it up to the kind of conversations we were having before about DFIR and, and ICS and things like that. Um, does anybody have any questions they want to go into? Sure. I got one. If it hasn't been asked already, sorry, I got late. It's been snowing, uh, cats and dogs outside. So it took me a little while to actually get here. So I know you've actually been doing a lot of work of actually getting people started into the infosec career. And you've actually been doing a lot of things, which thank you again, because people like me actually need that. So would you actually uh, like to actually talk about that and actually the work you've done with that? Sure. Um, so the initiative was actually Miss Bats. Um, she built a wonderful framework that you can use to run your own uh, infosec career and resume review sessions at cons. But we go around to cons and both of us individually do too. And we do interview and resume review clinic. And we get a bunch of volunteers who are hiring managers in the community and we uh, schedule sessions and sit down with people and, you know, try to help them get jobs. And we've been doing that for a while now. We've had a lot of success. I love getting messages from people who are like, yeah, you helped me get a job like a year ago. Like, you know, now it's like five years ago, you helped me get a job and now I'm hiring people. So that's, that's super cool. I like that. But, you know, sometimes, um, Sometimes you got to do the jobs that aren't so sexy and fun. It's really important for the InfoSec community. Like, not everything can be like, I love doing forensics. I love doing research into malware and stuff. But the work that needed to be done at the time was getting people into seats. So I did it. And uh, we need more people to just do those, those less entertaining, those less technical things, you know. Don't just leave it to the few people who are going to do it. And again, thank you for what you do, because not a lot of people actually like doing that, because like you said before, we're pretty introverted, and uh, it's kind of actually hard to actually get people to actually want to talk to each other. As somebody who went through that uh, this year at DerbyCon, thank you for running that. Yeah, it was awesome. I, I had a good time. I'm really sad that this will be our last year running the yeah. clinic there. Real sad. But we'll find other cons, and we'll keep running them. Awesome. So, so did anything draw you to uh, Dragos in particular? Yes. Um, I was thinking about a new job, and Rob said, hey, do you want to save civilization? And I said, mm, okay. <laughs> let me grab my katana. Get, let me get my sword and my computer, and I'll be right there, Rob. All right. No, it's, it's important work. Enabled. It's like serious, serious note. Like, it's... There's nothing more important than you can that you can be doing in security than protecting people and protecting people's safety, health, privacy, stuff like that. That's that's really important. Definitely, that's a great answer. Thank you. So, what makes an incident response particularly nasty for the responders? Um, I've got some of my opinions, but I'd be interested to hear it from a more seasoned. So bad for me personally. Um, I mean, I guess the saddest cases I see are the ones where we get called in really late after the fact, and computer evidence is volatile, even the stuff on disk. Um, the stuff in memory and stuff is especially so, that's why we call it volatile evidence. But even on stuff on disk, logs, et cetera, it cycles over after a while, it gets overwritten. And um, if you're calling, if you're calling incident responders in a year or even like, six months after an incident's happened, so much of that is gone. And sometimes 
the answer is we can't tell you what happened. It's uh, all the logs are gone. There's no memory evidence. There's no disk evidence. Everything's been overwritten. You replace the computers. Um, it's not magic. So when there's no log retention and you know the computers have been destroyed or overwritten, um, orcs can be kind of SOL, and it's it's a rough time as an incident responder, like to tell people. I mean, I want to. I want to solve the mystery. I want to find out what happened and catch the bad guy. And uh, that's not always possible um, with the long detection periods that a lot of orcs still have. So, yeah, definitely feel you on that. There's a few times I've seen shit that's a few months old. So, what are like logging procedures like on these like large machines? Like, how often uh, do you see like actual comprehensive logs dating back? Any like a good amount of time mm, it depends it really depends on the organization like where their security posture is if they have an incident response program or a log retention program like sometimes they do sometimes they don't sometimes it's just like computers that some guy set up once and then other times it's a very well organized matrix of log retention so it's not even tied to the size of the organization some of the big organizations are way more disorganized than the small ones like it just really depends on somebody in the organization understanding it's important to do it. What are your favorite tools to recommend for the preparation phase of incident response? Uh, drill, 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 and drill some more. Um, it's, it's kind of a dumb answer, but document everything. Um, document all your procedures. Document where your hosts are, your communication chains. Um, Definitely have good like CMDB or uh, asset management in place um, and know how to use it and then drill. Just run through your procedures over and over again until you can do them at 2 a.m. when it's you by yourself in the middle of the night. Is there any uh, particular incident that you can tell us about that is memorable? Hmm. I'm trying to think of what I'm not NDA'd from talking about. Um, that is the rough part of being an incident responder. Is like you can talk about so few of the incidents you work on. Um, very vaguely, like um, I missed six of the last ten Thanksgivings. Um, I can say, I can say that like adversaries know when to attack. And they know when U.S. holidays are, and uh, they know when there will be less security people around. And it's just like clockwork, man. Like, you know when they'll go on vacation, and they know when you go on vacation, and nobody ever goes on vacation. It's just, it's just a perpetual battle that nobody even knows about. Like, like uh, the incident the incident responders are working the holidays, and uh, the adversaries know that the incident responders are going to try to boot them out of the network during their holidays, and uh, it's never ending. I think that's a, like a good point too. Is that you know there are no vacations, and that very oftentimes like there are a lot of um, patterns, and like when you see things like that, are there any other like significant patterns like attack that you see in attackers? Living off the land. Um, I mean, I mean, everybody knows that at this point, I think. But man, it's it's past the days where you could expect like a nice malware hash to, to really help you out, other than maybe like Mimi cats and memory if you got EDR. Like, it's um, everything's you know, get a VPN credential, RDP, and get domain admin. You know, you might see like like a like a dump of LSAS. That's about it. Like, 
you know, if you're not catching that kind of stuff, like dumping LSAS or, you know, running Mimi cats or something, like you're done. Cause it's just, at this point, it's just people using credential stuffing or, um, you know, looking for like credentials in a dump from your company from before and uh, accessing VPN or phishing somebody. So you need to have that two factor on, you need to add both your VPN and your email. Um, you need to be looking at phishing emails, um, and then you need to be looking at remote access really carefully because adversaries aren't messing around with exploiting your firewall anymore. They're um, they're just getting your admin's credentials and moving into the network and dumping more credentials as they go. Like, there's hardly any tools and hardly any malware in use. Absolutely. I think you brought up a really good point about knowing your adversary, and I suppose this applies to both sides. Um, so I guess you could say that you, you see patterns in different adversaries and uh, that you've done incident response on? Sure. And could you like, would you sometimes correlate, be like, oh, this is the exact same thing I've seen in this other attack. It's probably the same. We're leaning towards the attribution uh, elephant in the room. Um, nobody, nobody wants well, to talk about attribution, but like... I mean, as a personal... Um, Personal guess is like a, a gut feeling, maybe it's not, gut not feeling, like sure. exact. Yeah, uh, yeah. Being in a forensic person or an incident responder relies heavily on having great gut feelings, but also being able to prove, make a hypothesis based on those and prove or disprove it logically. So it's two steps. You've got to be good at, I have a gut feeling about this adversary, and then also okay, now I'm going to make a hypothesis about that and do a logical structured investigation to try to disprove my hypothesis, like the scientific method. So like, you got to be able to do both. You got to have the, uh, the feelings and the science. You got to have both. Um, so um, I had a question for you about sort of um, just the general DFIR space. Um, is what are some of the most overlooked things in terms of security that you wish you could uh, scream at the sun <laughs> I guess the kind of things that you, the the pain points that you see in organizations and, and enterprises that you wish that they would know before something bad happened. Um, are we talking industrial or um, IT? I guess we could do uh, IT to start off with and then maybe do industrial okay. after. Um, still seeing problems on asset management, like, and this is, I'll just cover them both because in IT, it's still a problem. Like there's still those computers out there on people's networks. I know about them. You got those computers that are running Windows 2003 server that aren't in your asset database. And you're like, I hope they just go away. Yeah, yeah, they're out there. But in ICS, like it's, uh, it's, it's like 10 years ago or 20 years ago in that space. Like it's a very different model of needs there things need to keep going. The power needs to stay on. It's, it's security can't come first because the power staying on comes first. Um, but something that makes me really sad is when I come in and do incident response and I have to spend like a day of my time building an asset database because they've never had one. Incident response, if you don't know, it's not cheap. I mean, it's just the nature of the thing. Like any company you go with, like, the best or, you know, just middle of the road, whatever, whoever you talk to, instant response is expensive by the hour when you're outside of a retainer, even with a retainer. Um, and if I have to spend a day of my time or my team's time building out an asset database, that's in a network map, that's really a rough, rough expenditure. So 
that makes me sad. I mean, I, it just, I feel bad for the companies. Um, do you have any suggestions for somebody who might work at a company that has no idea what the boxes that are on their network are uh, could do to build out an asset database in a practical way so, that doesn't cost a million dollars? Yeah, I mean, there's a million tools out there. You can look at the, if you're in an IT environment, you can look at the EDR or the asset management tool where you have an endpoint client um, and it reports back. Of course, that means you have to have some kind of central patch deployment where you can deploy those tools to every system. Um, you can also look at active scanning in IT environments, uh, which you can't do necessarily in an ICS environment. Um, you have a lot of tools available to you that aren't really costly. You do have to decide what kind of database you're going to use. An Excel spreadsheet probably isn't the best option, but if you have to, hey. Um, but uh, you know, I think the biggest problem for most orgs is buy-in from the execs. Like asset management is a big undertaking and, uh, you know, finding those systems that have been forgotten is a big undertaking. So you've got to get that buy-in. And I'd say the number one sell is get your risk manager and talk about if we had an incident tomorrow, how many hours of the incident responders time would we have to have them spend just figuring out where these vulnerable systems are and what they do? Um, so that would be my sales pitch to executive le uh, leadership on that. Um, but yeah, you can go the scanning route, the more active route, or you can go the more passive route of installing like a client that reports uh, back. You can look at things like your domain controller, if you've got host, host, uh, hosts reporting in or your antivirus server. Um, you've got a lot of options to make those lists of hosts, but it's it's a big undertaking, lots of paperwork. So now, if, you, uh, if you're going onto a site um, let's say do incident response for, for ICS or, or yeah, I'd say ICS. What are some of the first steps that you take when you get in there? Because you're talking about very old systems, talking about, you know, maybe PLCs that have been configured 20 plus years ago that the whole networks are unknown. Yeah. What are some of the first steps that you take when you get in there to actually get a foothold to be able to get data on what happened? If there's you know, in a nightmare scenario where there's like really crappy logging and really bad asset management. Yeah, so somebody in the channel just asked asset enumeration. Heck no, we cannot do that. There's no active scanning in ICS environments. That's that's how you blow stuff up in some of those environments, or at least the asset owners presume you're going to blow stuff up and they won't let you do it. Um, so the, actually the first thing is you come in with a box of donuts and you find the one lady or guy there who's been there for like 30 years and you say, I brought donuts. Can I sit down with you and understand how your system works? That's what you do. Um, you, uh, <laughs> you, you find that there's always that person who's just been there forever and they know how everything's laid out. You need to see those network maps. You need to see whatever asset lists they have. You need to, you need to talk to them about what, Vendor systems are in place. Um, and if you have a retainer, hopefully you've already built that relationship and you know kind of what's out there and who works there and stuff and you have those points of contact. But if you don't have a retainer and you're coming in blind, yeah, you got to sit down there and understand how everything fits together and what they've done so far. So you've got to talk to the security team. You've got to talk to that ICS system operator or engineer. Um, yeah, and uh, it's a lot of... Uh, careful conversations, very political conversations, and uh, information gathering before you can start doing response. Because, yeah, we can't go out there with Nmap and just scan for stuff. Um, um, the, it's, it's really debatable in 2019 how many things are actually going to get blown up by that. But 
if you talk to asset owners anywhere, they do not want active scanning because there is this stigma and based on very real incidents that these systems are so fragile at lower levels that they will just get a packet they don't understand and fail. So what are, uh, I guess if you want to, you don't have to answer this either, but what are some of the most like catastrophic failures that you can <laughs> see from something like this happening? Have you ever seen that in real life? Um, yes, I've seen in both lab environments and real environments. Yes, things can fail, um, especially during pen tests. Like we encourage something called digital twins um, a lot in the ICS space. And what that means is you have a second system sitting out there and it's like where you test your patches and mm -hmm. you test like system changes and you scan that instead of scanning your live environment. Um, yeah, oh, that makes perfect sense. It's just that, I mean, having seen different, you know, uh, tiers of, of uh, industrial um, and IoT yeah. services, it's just, there's sometimes, like, I've I've never seen it personally, but to see something just explode yes, from Yes, we've had people on site when a, we haven't been when the ones running the pen test, but other people have run pen tests and the operators have had systems fail due to the pen test. And hopefully you're working in like a digital twin environment at that point and you don't have to worry about it actually bringing down a live system. Absolutely. But yes, there are systems out there who get an ACK and when they expected a SIN and they just like don't know how to handle that. <laughs> like it's just like I don't my don't know how to handle this packet that I just received. I better just stop and throw up my hands so sounds reasonable yeah <laughs> um so when it comes to like attribution for something like this how do you go about sort of tracing and figuring out who did something because you, you discussed attack patterns before in terms of you know different attack styles and and you know holidays and you know different things like that i guess do you have any sort of um go-to methodology that you use for for determining like what happened and who did it so attribution is like a super political, tough question. Um, Dragos, we use something called the diamond model for attribution. And we build like general adversary groups out of that. It's more based on like how they operate, when they operate, what tools they use, stuff like that. Um, but we don't try to, we as a company never pinpoint things to a country. Like that's that's not something we do and, and that's on purpose. Like. It's so hard to tell without boots on the ground intelligence, like if somebody's hiring out hacking or if they're doing it in-house, like as part of their military or their intelligence services or whatever. Like, and it's not an important distinction for most of us in security. Like it's an important distinction to like Congress and the military and stuff. But to me doing incident response, I don't care if it's North Korea or Iran or whoever, like it's, it's it's irrelevant to me as long as I know how the adversary operates, what other things they've done, what tools they use, like how fast they do things, et cetera, et cetera, um, how often they make mistakes, stuff like that, and what their targets are. So um, that's what I need to know. I need to know a general adversary group and kind of how they operate. And uh, I don't need somebody to make a bad guess about, oh, it's who so-and-so is military unit. Like, what does that matter to me? Yeah. So uh, what kind of OPSEC mistakes have you seen from, like, uh, these more advanced attacking groups? And uh, what would you do differently? Uh, how would you recommend that someone would run better infrastructure for their attack? 
Oh, so like them giving some themselves away? Oh man. Like, yeah, like I've heard stories of like people will go on an attack yeah. and then like their VPN will tunnel will die and then like the yeah. IP. Um, I've definitely seen a lot of typos like from like these supposedly super APT APTs take a drink. Um, yeah, they they type commands wrong like eight times. And I'm just watching the command history and it's like they typed the same thing wrong and then they like Googled it and they copy pasted the wrong section of the page. And like, it's, Holy they're shit. humans too. Well, most, like of, me. most APTs have like multiple tiers of people who are doing the attacks. So they have like a bunch of like pretty new green red teamers who are like the people who just do the scans and like gain persistence and stuff and uh, kind of check things that are working and like maybe try to do some lateral movement and uh, they screw up a lot and then once they get where they want to go and it's time to do something the better people come in and they do the more advanced stuff so like it's not all like super elite hackers like sometimes it's just like the the college kids like who are just like brand new and they've just been told every day go check in the system like and they screw stuff up so yeah, at least they're persistent that's amazing <laughs> another so, unit of persistent so like the AI and APT. what kind of like technical bear or challenges would separate uh your aforementioned college student from a more skilled like what kind of things would like their employer be asking them to perform um so it's really hard to say again i'm not boots on the ground intel i don't have a i'm not sneaking around and they're in their base looking in the window seeing what they're doing but you can definitely see in a lot of those adversary groups like there's a division like there's the people who screw up and type, mistype things all the time time wrong and then there's the people who are doing like super advanced attacks and they're building custom industrial malware and stuff and that's like obviously it's different people like and why would you waste your person who's an expert on building industrial malware on going in there every day and you know dumping else and uh, getting some credentials like that's a routine task you can write the process down for and just send any person with like basic security and hacking knowledge to do so you have like 18 people who could do that and you have like two people who are really good and you aren't wasting a bunch of the, the really expert people's time that way. I mean, it makes sense no matter whether you're a bad guy, a good guy or whatever, whether you're just a, a red team operating in, in pen tests, like you don't want to waste your really pros time on those simple tasks that are so routine. Yeah, cool. Makes sense. Um, so how, how do you, what do you do to keep up to date um, with the latest like attacks and, and threats that are happening because there's some of them make the news and then you might see a similar thing happening in whatever situation that you're in um i guess how do you sort of keep up to date with that and apply that knowledge in the in the field i have no life and i'm like up on twitter until two in the morning um <laughs> that's pretty much it no i read a lot i read i listen to podcasts on my commute like i listen to a bunch of different commute podcasts and getting ready for work in the morning um and uh read news articles i follow twitter i follow conversations i'm following like eight thousand people so um in a bunch of different lists and stuff so yeah I, I do a really big effort with my free time to more than i probably should for my uh personal wellness and you know sanity and stuff but i uh, spend a lot of time reading into what's new and uh 
I also try to go to a lot of cons um, and uh, participate in, you know, meetups, stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Um, I have no life. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we're all here uh, on Valentine's Day now. I I hope everybody called their mom today. (laughs) Make sure you call your mom. I I would love to hear uh, maybe some examples of uh, podcasts and lists that you uh, find useful for exactly what you described. Also, kind of your your con technique. Sorry, can you restate that? I'm sorry. Yeah, so in terms of the uh basically you know how, how do you approach going to them uh everybody's got oh. a different way like some go and sit in the talks all day some go oh. in hallway con you know what what is your approach uh kind of whatever i feel like that day um i always look at the talks beforehand and i'll like you know highlight the talks that i really want to make and uh i uh also try to always leave time for networking and talking to friends and stuff um you know, I try to take it easy at most cons. I try to not book myself like 100% of the day in talks, but I also don't want to miss the talks that I'm going to get a lot of out of being in in person. And yeah, a lot of them are recorded, but you can't ask questions that way. It's not dynamic. You can't see the demos as well. So um, yeah, I mean, there I'll select some talks I want to see and uh, then I'll try to go check out all the other stuff. I'll try to do some volunteering, you know, a little bit of everything. Nice. Thanks. Sure. I'm curious, what kind of music do you listen to? <laughs> I listen to a lot of electronica. I uh, I summon industrial, but mostly electronica. I like a lot of uh, older electronica, like Orbital and stuff, Juno Reactor. Daft Punk? Definitely. Frontline Assembly, <laughs> Hybrid, stuff like that, yeah. As far as like uh, the local groups you were talking about, are there any ones in particular that you'd like to shout out? Yeah, so greets to Burbsec in Chicago and also to uh, MySec in Michigan. And um, let's see who else. Millsec in Milwaukee. Um, yeah, there's a lot of good Midwest uh, hacker groups out there. <laughs> Midwest <laughs> is lame. Yes, Midwest is lame. It's true. We are super lame. Say fresh water. It is interesting it that is. there's so many like um, so many people who I like respect who you know come from that area because it's not something somewhere you like think of when you think of like uh, tech, but there is really like a lot of really talented people out there. Man, I grew up on a farm. We had no money. We didn't even own a house, and uh, uh, there was nothing else to do. My dad bought a computer to like monitor like farm purchases in the '80s and. Uh, like it was like go outside and work on the farm or sit inside and figure out how the computer worked. And uh, man, I discovered really early on that I wanted to study hard and never work on a farm ever again. So <laughs> can't relate. Don't worry yeah. about it. You're not the only yeah. one. Yeah. It's very, very much the same. But much respect for people who do that for a living. And I love gardening still, but I know I don't have it in me to do that day in and day out. I'm just not, not tough enough. So what was the, uh, just speaking of the first computer, what kind of computer would a Midwestern farmer buy in the 80s to do that? My dad is an old school hacker. He bought in 1987. I posted the receipt on Twitter one time because he kept it and I found it in a file. Um, it's It was a Dell 286. Um, it was running uh, DOS with Windows 2.1 on it. And uh, it was a pretty awesome computer. It cost... 
And we had, keep in mind, we had no money at the time. It cost $7,000, something like that. And uh, you had to get in a payment plan. It was like paying off a house or a car. You had to get into like a multi-year payment plan for it. But um, that's how much it cost at the time to buy a computer that was business quality. So, Damn. Yeah, you can go find it on my Twitter. I can try to find it and repost it, but the whole re itemized receipts on there of all the crap that was in that computer. But now that taught me so much. I learned, uh, I learned basic and GW basic, and um, and I uh, followed like the programs in like popular electronics and stuff. And uh, it was, uh, I was bored. <laughs> I was really bored. I read a lot of books and I learned how to computer. That's really cool, though. I think that that's something that is we've talked about this a bunch it, you know, it's, it's hard to to impart that sort of um i guess curiosity on people now or, or make people that bored because everything is so that worries accessible. me like there's yeah. no everything is just like an interface you just interact with and like being good with computers is really just like knowing how to navigate an iphone and it's just yeah like... man that, that really worries me you can't fix anything anymore you can't take anything apart anymore like there's you can't take apart your TV or your computer or anything. Like everything's just an app. Like it's all artificial now. It's games to teach you how to program, and you gotta you gotta take things apart. Yeah, I would say uh, take MG's example and pull it apart anyway. Yeah, fair. Yeah, <laughs> bring it and backdoor it. So, you, your parents get pretty mad when you take apart their Kindle, probably though. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I mean, like no more than when you did it with your desktop computer, and it cost seven thousand dollars. God, that was Ooh. that receipt is insane. Yeah, I gotta definitely go try to find that again because it's it's. I feel so lucky today that I can get a nice like fourteen hundred dollar PC that's great for gaming and it's it's good for a few years and stuff. And it didn't used to be like that. I've noticed a growing pattern. Well, not a growing pattern. Uh, a pattern throughout like all of my personal existence uh, that. Everybody, the bulk of people who are really talented have a very similar background, where they came from minimal money, a lot of spare time, and often not from a city. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a common theme. So I'm just curious to dig a little more into there. Do you have any uh, fun stories of, I don't know, being really scrappy to advance your learning? You know, for me, it was the garbage picking stuff from stores or <laughs> neighbors. Yeah, yeah, yeah stuff totally. like that. Totally. Um, what do I want? What, what do I want to admit you though on a podcast? Um, I bought hard drives off of eBay in the early, late '90s, early 2000s to learn how to do disk forensics on them. And nice. one time, I, one time, no, one time I got a hard drive, and it was always just like people's PCs. And I, man, I don't care about people's porn. I've seen so much porn now on people's computers that it's like, that's nice. I'm gonna drink my tea now, whatever. But like. The, the creepy one I got was a bank's computer and it was like, a, it was like a 486 and um, looked at the hard drive and there was a full windows install on there. And um, there was a recycle bin and there was stuff in the recycle bin in windows. And it was a database and it was the bank's entire account database unencrypted. I wiped that wow. hard drive like 11 times and then smashed it. <laughs> oh my God. Damn. Can you tell us what year that was? Oh man, I'm mean, gonna go back in the before time bus here. It must have been like 2002, maybe 2003. It was a long time ago. Damn. Are there any legal risks from doing that? Or sorry, you're not a lawyer, but what, that was what a do you long presume? Time ago. I, 
Man, I uh, I wouldn't recommend people do that anymore. And companies have gotten so good yeah. at either smashing hard drives or wiping them. Like you're not going to find stuff like that often anymore. Um, even if you go to Goodwill now, they take the hard drives out of computers, and it's so much easier to wipe SSDs too, like and wipe them very very effectively um, than it was, uh, you know, mechanical ladder hard drives. Um, just yeah. use your computers now. I was definitely going to do the same thing, uh, <laughs> but I was really scared I'd get, like, CSAM or something fucked up. I mean, I can say that there's, uh, while trashing isn't as huge now, like, just going into a random bin yeah. behind a company, there is, uh, like, ex-government computer places and stuff that there's, uh, that are supposed to destroy the stuff. Oh, yes. I wouldn't recommend anybody no. go there. But... Uh, those government auction sites in multiple countries, multiple states, if you need cheap equ computer equipment, that is the way to go, man, because uh, multiple countries and multiple police and government agencies sell off computer equipment. They don't know what it is for super cheap. Yeah, they'll take the hard drives out, but if you want a bunch of RAM or some, you know, rack-mounted servers or something, good good resource. Yeah, because they have to spend their IT budget or else they lose it for the next uh, next year. <laughs> so it's just time to buy Every, they always buy everything new, like clockwork. Um, I guess, what are some of the most unexpected things that you've seen in terms of, of you know, DFIR in, in any scenario? Like, hmm. the most surprising unexpected. things. Unexpected. I feel like I've seen so much now that everything is just, <laughs> everything is just, you know, more of the, the same I know about humans now. But, um, man, uh... It's really hard to say now. I've just seen so much of humanity. Like, that's the thing about working in forensics. Like, you don't understand. You're going to become a psychologist. Like, you're going to become a, a counselor. Like, you're going to be that transparent, transparent person in the wall who's ethically bound to never talk about what you've seen except in, like, a legal context. And you see everything. And it's the same in security operations when you're looking at, like, network browsing logs and stuff. Um you see every edge of humanity. You see people on their worst days. You see, you see, and it's, that's the thing that bothers me about like internet and IoT privacy. Because I know what I can see about people just looking at their browsing history and you know their network traffic. I can see when somebody's died in their family and they're buying flowers. I can see what music they like. I can see that they're looking into a school for their kids, and it's so intensely personal and. I just have to numb myself to it. It's, it's, and you see horrible things too, of course, in forensics. You see really terrible, you see the darkest parts of humans too, but so much of it is just people living and uh, you feel, you feel almost grotesque, like, a, like you're looking in on people's lives inappropriately and you're just doing your security job, you know, just making sure that they're not going to malware sites and things or, you know, cleaning up an, an incident on their computer. But just as a byproduct, sitting there on that network, you see everything. And um, it takes a certain personality type to learn that much about humans. But um, yeah, you just have to be able to detach yourself from it and understand that most of it, most humans that I see are pretty decent people. They're just trying to live. That's, that was actually really heartwarming, yeah. <laughs> Wow, I didn't expect that at all. Um, oh, so Mu had said here, um, do you think forensics tools can be improved? And with the issues um, on overriding with SSDs, do you think that that would be problematic in the future? 
SSDs are a pain in the butt for forensics. It's true. Um, especially when they're wiped. Um, data recovery is still quite a bit harder on SSDs if they're wiped properly. Um, I mean, if you sit there and overwrite a platter hard drive, it's overwritten. One overwrite is pretty pretty much the end of things. But a lot of people didn't used to do that. And uh, when they had a hard drive crash too, like if it was just a controller, that was a pretty easy thing to fix. But SSDs are so arcane. There's so many different ways that they're constructed. Um, yeah, they are a pain in the butt to deal with from a data recovery perspective. Um, some, some vendors more than others. Um, it's definitely... Still, I, I definitely advise people, if you've got important stuff that you don't want to lose, don't put it on SSDs. At least have a backup somewhere. Like They're awesome, but data recovery is a pain in the butt. Uh, speaking of data recovery, then, um, with like write blockers and, and that kind of thing, is there any particular uh, uh, hardware tools that you would recommend for people who uh, maybe don't have a billion-dollar budget? Yeah, you should have a write blocker. You should definitely have a write blocker. Um, that's just like forensics 101. Don't contaminate your evidence, especially if it could ever end up in court. Um, document everything that you do. That's That costs nothing. It costs a notebook. Like write down every time that you did something during data evidence collection and forensics, like exactly what you did, what commands you entered, and uh, what evidence you collected, what condition it was in. But yeah, a cheap write blocker, a couple hundred bucks, yeah, you should have that if you're going to do any kind of evidence collection. That's just like basics of not contaminating your evidence and making a, uh, a decent copy of it. Um, on top of that, like forensics can be expensive. Um, a lot of the tools that corporations expect you to know, like FTK and NCASE, are very, very pricey. Um, but you can learn a lot. Like it's wonder one wonderful thing is that me uh, memory forensics is cheap. Um, most of the tools that are used in enterprises today, like volatility and recall, like they are essentially free. Um, so you can learn volatile data forensics, like memory forensics, on the cheap now, and that's very very important. Disk forensics, there's still big commercial players in that space, and uh, that's a little harder. So. Um... Just curious, what pain points have you run into with some of the open source tools like uh, Autopsy in compares to Autopsy like, is fine. Like bulk extractor is great. Like SIFKit is a wonderful, wonderful VM. Like, but the problem is, is when you go into an interview for a forensics position, they aren't going to give a crap that you used Autopsy. They're going to ask if you used FTK or NCASE. Um, so that's the lousy part there. Like they're going to care about the tools that are commercially acceptable. Like, but if you want to learn about forensics and how basically how those things work, Autopsy is awesome. Download SIFKit for sure. Um, play with SleuthKit, you know, um, that stuff's all pre-built. It's really easy to learn from. There's great cheat sheets for everything on the SANS website. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of tools to learn from like Autopsy, but the the crappy thing that I, I can't really get around is that when you get into that interview for a forensics position, they're going to say, how many years of experience do you have with NCASE? Yeah. There's a lot of high expectations set for certs. Yeah. I'm CLSSP certified, so I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, so I was going to ask you, what are, what are, some of the most challenging things, I guess, um, 
in terms of forensics, so you're talking about SSDs, um, and then a follow-up question would be, do you have a personal, like, thing that was very, very difficult to actually recover uh, that you ended up getting in the long run? Um, again, I'm trying to think of what I can actually talk about. Okay. A lot of it has been network forensics, like things that have been encoded and then encrypted and then encrypted again and then encrypted again. Like adversaries like to play games with their command and control channels. It's like uh, they'll they'll try to make they try to make reversers and analysts jo lives really really miserable. Um, so um, especially doing network forensics when you're looking at like malware command and control, you'll see things that have been encrypted, then encrypted again, then, you know, like flipped and then recoded with different characters and then like encrypted again. And I think one of the most enjoyable things is pulling something apart like that and finally getting to like a command portion, portion that's readable. Like that's, that's pretty awesome. But because you know, the, the malware author out there is just trying to make your life hell. It's the same with like uh, PowerShell encoding you know when somebody sticks something in the registry that executes a bunch of powershell that's often really obfuscated and uh it's uh made to be illegible to the casual observer so it's kind of cool to sit there and actually figure out how one of those things works so what skills do you see are most lacking in the defer industry these days um I, as someone who's new to it, I spent a lot of time focusing on like memory forensics and like open source tools and like things that I could deliver for free, but I don't really know like what the next step would be. So I can kind of break down what you need to know and differ. Um, I don't really consider it an entry level job because you need to come in with so much understanding of how everything works. Like you kind of need to have some security background elsewhere, like security operations, how malware works, et cetera, you know, how systems work, how network work, networks work, how signatures work, et cetera. But basic foundational skill sets for differ um, memory forensics, host forensics, network forensics, but then all the soft skills too, because you're an investigator and you're a reporter. So you need to understand the process for incident response from beginning to end, you know, the, the whole every step of incident response, whichever model you prefer there, um, from preparation to lessons learned. And um, you need to understand how to write a report really well. You need to understand how to be an incident handler and interface with, you know, management and legal, HR, uh, IT, um, customers, everybody you need to talk to during an incident. Uh, you need to be able to make good reports and give a talk about your report. Um, and you need to be able to keep people calm and on task. So you need to be a good project manager too. So I'd say the soft skills are usually one of the more lacking things, but you need those three technical areas too, those three areas of friends. So um, it's a mix. So uh, I found some really sketchy shit on Shodan that I can only guess what it does. Um, but I can take a look at it and kind of guess that it can go boom. Uh, for example, like I was on, I was looking for open VNC with no auth and I found what looks like some kind of like a gas pump, but there's a little flame thing at the end of it. And it was like flickering. Uh, it looks concerning. So I was just wondering like, how do you go about tracking down the organizations to report like vulnerabilities like that to them? Uh, I hate these. It depends answers, but um, so first thing about that is if it was easy to like explode things, a lot more things would be exploding. 
there's a lot of people out there on Shodan now hitting buttons. So there's a lot of fail-safes built into these systems, like either manual or electronic fail-safes, um, things like safety instrumented systems, and then just manual fail-safes, safes, release scale, valves and stuff. Doesn't mean you couldn't like tamper with systems if their uh, HMIs are exposed, but the risk of you hitting one button and exploding something is pretty low. That's why we see nation states taking a year to exploit some of these systems, because they have to do a lot of research to figure out how to actually make them break. Um, that doesn't mean you can't. Like, we don't want them exposed. Like, there could be that crazy situation where the manual release valve or something fails, and you hitting a button actually makes something explode. So yeah, I mean, we want to be reporting those. Um, in some cases, the the industrial vendor is just going to say there is a manual failsafe and that's okay. Like there's nothing you can do from this HMI that's going to make it actually fail or explode. You can get reconnaissance data, but you can't really do anything. Um, or they'll say, well, you could tamper with settings, but we'll immediately see it in our SCADA system and um, our operator will be able to respond and there's a failsafe involved. So report it, definitely try to report it to these organizations, do it politely and do it in simple terms so they understand you're not trying to hack them. Um, definitely Dragos is there as an intermediary if you're really having trouble. Um, tell us and we'll try to get in hold of, we have connections with some of those industries and we'll do our best to help, but yeah. Don't is that like a that. pin you on Twitter thing or do you have like a portal or what? Um, you can email us. Uh, I believe we have info at dragos.com on our website. Um, or yeah, you can DM on Twitter either way. Um, I mean, definitely it's... try to reach out to those utilities yourself if they have contact information, but um, if that's difficult or you don't know how to reach out to, yeah, we're happy to help. Yeah, um, so how would you suggest you learn more about like what kind of hazards these things could pose? Cause like, like you just said, like what I described might not have necessarily been able to go boom. Um, but I couldn't necessarily make that judgment with my lack of knowledge. Yeah, I'm right? not saying go hit buttons. For God's sakes, don't like go hit buttons. That's really bad. It's big and red. Yeah. <laughs> this is me telling you, even though it's probably not going to go boom, don't assume it won't. But at the same time as a, oh my God, we're going to die standpoint. Yes, there's a lot of exposed stuff, but a lot of it does have many layers of fail safes in it. Um, so we're not probably doomed today because of that, but it should still get cleaned up. It shall, still shouldn't be directly exposed to the internet. That should never be the case. How would you suggest someone learn more about like the kinds of safety mechanisms and whatnot that go into these systems? That's tough. Um, again, let's talk about those adversaries that are actually uh, breaking into industrial systems, you know, tampering with power plants, stuff like that, building malware for them. They have a long cycle of you know, building up their attack and doing reconnaissance. It's usually like a year long, something like that, where they just sit there and they look at the systems. They they gain access to the system somehow, maybe through the IT side of things. And they just sit there for like a year reading documentation, um, checking system versions, stuff like that, building a foothold on the network. And then they finally do something once they know enough. Um, so... If you're just Joe researcher out there and you see an HMI, you are at the same point as those adversaries are when they first 
you know, go on Shonen themselves than say the system's exposed and it's a target I want to look at. Um, you can't really, you really don't know the full architecture of that network. I would err towards caution and reporting it. I would definitely tell those utilities. I'm so and so security researcher. I uh, here are my reputable credentials or where I work or whatever to make yourself look legit. And I found this. You probably want to get this into a more secure environment where it's not exposed. These are my recommendations. Blah 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 blah. Um, and not many of them have vulnerability reporting programs yet. So it's still think 1998, think 2004. Like it's uh, still you're, you're still going to get ignored a lot. You're still going to get yelled at a lot. It's just unfortunate. Um, but I would definitely still err towards reporting. Uh, could you talk us through some of like the things that made like the Ukrainian power grid attack so like devastating? And like oh, man. how how those things kind of uh, went from what you just talked about, like where you find something out there to yeah. like that. So a few things to say about Ukraine. Um, they have been a test bed for multiple types of cyber type attacks. Take a drink. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, for obvious political reasons um, and logistic reasons, too. Um, the attacks against their power grid were one of the few kinetic attacks that have been really well documented out there. And they were shocking for multiple reasons um, because they were so well thought out. They weren't highly technical. Um, and most of these advanced tax attacks aren't. They're using a lot of living off the land. But they were very, very, very well researched. And that's what I'm talking about, that long dwell time, that long reconnaissance period. Because they thought about the adversary in this case thought about how do we disrupt them doing uh, restoration during instant response? Um, how are we going to keep them from quickly restoring the systems? And uh, you know, they tampered with the uh, the connections, the the serial to Ethernet uh, conversions between the uh, remote operators and the uh, lower level devices that were uh, impacted. So. Um, you had to actually send technicians on site to do repairs instead of doing them remotely. So there was a lot of forethought there. There was um, not just thought into how to conduct the attack, but how to really make the incident responders miserable, the forensics people miserable by, um, you know, destroying the, the, essentially destroying the computer systems involved. Um, they, they did a lot of anti-forensics, a lot of uh, tampering with systems so they couldn't be easily restored. Um, but that's all human beings thinking. It, unlike crimeware, where it's like, throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and see what sticks, even very sophisticated stuff. It's like, okay, let's think about how the system works. Let's think about how their operations work. Let's think about how we can disrupt their day-to-day -day activities because we know how they work. Um, it's a very different style of attacks. Yeah, not to mention doing it in the dead of winter. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's terrific. Freezing cold outside. It's horrible. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything that you would like to say? Because there's quite a good amount of people that listen here. And yeah. all the times you do get interviewed, like, they're usually just technical questions. Is there anything you want to rant? Man, um, 
so I don't think a lot of people know what I do. Like I, I tweet about a lot of security things, but like I hope this interview clears up like what I technically do because I do so much volunteer work and like training on soft skills, like interviews and resumes. Like nobody really knows that I'm an incident responder and I do forensics and I do malware analysis. Like that's that's my life. I, I live in the in the industrial control system space now, and I'm doing that stuff. So I love talking about it, and I'd love to come to conferences and talk about it more. Um, but uh, everybody's always like, "Can you talk about women in tech? Can you talk about interviews?" And I'm like, "Okay." But uh, yeah, I I am a forensics technical person. I do forensics and incident response on industrial systems. And uh, I love that stuff. I eat it up and I'm happy to talk about any of this stuff at conferences or at college classes, whatever. Have you, um, do you ever just say no? Like, I don't want to talk about being a woman in tech. I just want to talk about tech. You don't. (laughs) No, we're both doing the same thing of like helping everybody, but um, yes, I have said no to doing women in tech panels. I have definitely said no to that. And it's not because I don't think they have value. It's just that I like talking about computers. I yeah, like talking about hacking. Like, that's that's my thing. But um, I hardly ever turn, like, educational things down because it's so important to get the next generation of people in. Like, you know yeah. all about it. I totally get it. <laughs> So maybe you could speak on that. Um, for people who are trying to diversify their speaker crowds, how do you attract female or people of color speakers without asking like really redundant or annoying questions or coming off as really out of touch with basic human social interaction? Um, reach out to them directly. Don't be like, I need a woman on this panel. Just be like, hey, I like this and this work you did. And can you come? speak or do you want to join our panel just just ask like as long as the person's qualified and it's a good fit and you like their work be like hey i like this blog you wrote or this research you did or this thing in your github like come be on my panel go see people out it comes exactly reading reading more and like following people and just seeing what they do rather than yeah being like we must call female everybody's humans like or maybe robots i don't know but like (laughs) And, like, I don't know any women speakers who are, like, going to be upset if you call them and are like, hey, I thought that Kubernetes POC you made was cool. Can you come talk about it? Like, I know a lot of women speakers who are going to be, like, you know, if you're like, hey, we need a a female-shaped person on this panel. Can you come be on our panel? Don't. (laughs) Nobody likes that. Never do that. Like, oh, God, it's, I know you mean well, but please, please, I've gotten that so many times, and I'm sure you have too, Ian. It's like, it's like. I am looking for a woman to be on this panel. I'm like, what does that say about me, about my qualification? I've been doing this like my entire adult life. Like it's my entire life. I, I live and breathe this. Don't be like, I need a woman. Like, <laughs> like you could just get any woman off the street if that's your criteria. But that doesn't really make us feel good at all. List off cringeworthy things to say to people. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, you're this. You should get else yep funny so eric in the chat just asked if you had any thoughts on the nsa reversing tool that they're going to release soon kidra i mean i think it's cool that the stuff's getting out there it can't hurt the community i mean it's obviously obsolete tech now if they're releasing it like but 
Right. Well, I'm sure we'll learn things from it. I'm sure it'll help a lot of people. We can't have enough tools. Like, uh, just appreciate it for what it is. Understand it's obsolete, and it's it, but it still might be useful for us dealing with commodity stuff. Like, sure, that's that's great. Are there any uh, cool projects that you've seen that are open source that aren't getting enough love that you'd want to shout out or discuss that you use? I mean, Yara still doesn't get enough love. Like, I know it's stupid, but uh, as far as innocent response goes, if you're not using Yara right now, I don't know what's going on. Like, um, you know, it's it's a really cool tool for dealing with uh, detection, especially file-based detection. So... Um, that, that'd be one I'd plug, definitely. What does your stack look like? Like, you personally, let's say there's X incident, what are you bringing? So, um, I have a jump kit that has my personal equipment that's going to have things like tons of dongles and adapters, um, a bunch of hard drives, um, tools to open things and, uh, take computers apart and things like that, flashlights, um, collection kits, you know, evidence bags and stuff. Um, and then I also have, we have a fly, we have fly, multiple flyaway kits and that usually gets shipped out or shipped to one of us. We bring it on the plane with us and that contains more detailed forensic equipment, like extra laptop, uh, bright blockers, stuff like that. And all the things that you'd see in like IR go kits. So bag and our larger case full of IR equipment, we've got a bunch of hard drives, uh, multiple laptops, uh, our dongles for our forensics tools. Um, right blockers with all kinds of cables and adapters, a full toolkit. Um, and you're dealing with different stuff in industrial too. Like you got to get industrial cabinets open. So I have to carry a bunch of PPE with me too. So like a uh, hard hat, you know, um, fire retardant clothes, uh, safety boots, stuff like that. So all, all that kind of equipment too. So it's uh, it's an interesting world to live in. That is really interesting. Um, do you have a, like a hard drive of choice, like a favorite hard drive for doing recovery on? Not really. Um, kind of just it's something that's well rated that uh, is the correct size. Um, in a lot of cases, I like those uh, encrypted hard drives that do their own local encryption. Um, that's kind of cool. Um, you can do it on top of your own encryption too. Um, it's just kind of a handy feature to have, but yeah, I'm not picky. Like I've been doing this for a long time. If it goes and it's not going to fail and it's well rated and it's the right size, I'm all right with it. When you do evidence collections, do you put uh, like, do you put different incidents on different disks or do you just like zip up the files? Like, how do you manage? Like, it depends like obviously on the, you're going to have on the type of uh, evidence you're collecting. Um, yeah, in some cases, if you're doing fast collection, you might only collect like volatile evidence. You might e not even get it a full memory image. You might just be getting, you know, process data, stuff like that, uh, cache, registry, stuff like that. But um, as you have more time for collection, you collect more stuff. And we always want more stuff in security, right? Like we want more logs, we want more data, we want more evidence. So, um, you know, we get all the way up to the point where we're collecting full physical images of hard drives using a write blocker. And of course, um, that's awesome. That's wonderful because there could be stuff in Slack space that we want to go find later um, in unallocated space, you know, like um, 
that was deleted or, you know, logs that are from previous, you know, boots of the system. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, it really depends on exactly what you're collecting, how much time you have to collect it, um, whether you're collecting just volatile evidence or both volatile and disk evidence. Um, I was wondering, uh, how much has changed with, like, everything being, like, very virtual now? Like, what is the process about, like, recovering things from, like, virtual machines and that so kind of... So I have a little joke that I tell, and my little joke is uh, ICS is where people end up when they don't want to deal with the cloud anymore. Because um, you go back, it's like getting in your time machine and going back 20 years. Um, but the unfortunate thing is the Terminator follows you back with all the exploits from 2019. So, <laughs> so um, in the space that I'm in, I don't see a ton of virtualization and I don't see a ton of cloud. Of course, that's going to grow. But uh, ICS is such a slow, like long life cycle that these systems are, you know, we're still dealing with Windows 2000, Windows 95, stuff like that. We're not there yet. It's going to get there eventually. But um, yeah, cloud forensics is very different. Um, and there's a lot of neat things you can do in terms of forensics with uh, virtual machines, especially because they often retain a flat file that's their memory image, which is, hey, all of a sudden I don't have to, to alter the system by installing a tool to collect memory. Like, it's just sitting out there on the host machine. Awesome. That's, that's super neat. And I might not have to, like, use a write blocker because I can just copy off, I can hash and then copy off the... Uh, hard drive from the virtual machine host too. So yeah, there's a lot of cool things there. And in cloud, it gets even cooler. There's all kinds of interesting forensics logging tools for, you know, cloud hosts as well. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a changing world, definitely. There's still a lot of hard drives out there. There's still a lot of memory out there and memory is still absolutely crucial for like doing memory uh, analysis from uh, malware and stuff like that. But um, yeah, there's a lot of new stuff. I don't deal with a lot of it because I'm an industrial. Do you have thoughts on, um, for people who are interested in doing like cloud forensics on like resources or places to point them? I get asked this a lot and I don't know anything about it. So um, Amazon, I don't know about Microsoft, but Amazon has seminars that go around the United States and they often are security focused. You can go to their website and they're like free and you could sign up to them and, and like there's going to be some marketing talk, but they have talks on like what security tools are available, what forensic tools are available, and their people are there. So if you live near a metro area, like go to the Amazon website and see what talks and uh, conferences are available near you. Cool. Thanks. So uh, what kind of mistakes do you see incident or inexperienced incident responders making the most? Uh, and what, what should they be doing? Um, they're the same mistakes that police officers and detectives made a hundred years ago. It's uh, making assumptions and jumping to conclusions and not following the scientific method. Um, it's very tempting sometimes to see a piece of evidence and try to make it fit our idea of what happened. Um, like I said, you're going to have both that gut feeling about what happened, and then you're also going to need to do the, the proper scientific process um, of uh, disproving that hypothesis. Um, but a lot of people make that initial assumption, oh, it looks like China, it was China. And then they try to make all of their evidence fit that conclusion and they're wrong. And they go down a tangent and all their effort goes into trying to prove this thing like correct instead of trying to disprove their hypothesis. And uh, 
Yeah, it's that scientific method. Like it's not getting caught up in our own presumptions and our own assumptions and trying to make the evidence fit us. The evidence doesn't fit us. The evidence is there and it tells a story and we have to understand what that story is. Interesting. That fits right into what uh, T Prophet was asking earlier about lots of um, different attribution. He's, he mentioned Iran without evidence and asking how much of that was real, but he said of attribution, how often do you feel like attribution is a preconceived notion seeking to support evidence for bigger things like this? All the time. That's most of attribution, really. Um, because like I said earlier, like unless you have a spy on the ground, a boots on the ground, and they um, they know what's going on, they could look in the window or whatever, or they are sitting in the embassy tapping the phone, like everything is everything is artificial we don't know um we kind of know what things look like but we're constantly trying to fit the evidence make make it fit a story and people like stories a lot that's that's a problem when you're doing science and investigation <laughs> absolutely but hey um is there any uh last words you want to say before we uh drop off no i think i think i covered a lot, a lot <laughs> of ground tonight oh my god Absolutely. It's been fun. Thank you very much. And thanks for answering all of our questions. Um, this has been an awesome interview. Um, love to have you back and talk and you're welcome to uh, hang out here in our community as well. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much. It's been really fun. Hello. Hello. Uh, one second. I'm um, echoing. So that was it's pretty sweet, uh, Hacks for Pancakes. I hope everyone yeah, enjoyed uh, that. Yeah, that was a really awesome interview. Like, she went over so much stuff. Like, it actually was a lot longer, too. We had to kind of cut some of it down for time. But, it like, she knows so much about so many amazing things. And I'm just, like, in awe of, of all of it. I wish we could just talk to her forever about, like, all sorts of different very specific things that she knows about that not a lot of people do. She definitely really she does, she does. Uh, resume clinics at DEF CON usually and it's helpful in lots of ways too. I think one of the cool things that she does that she mentioned she does a lot that uh, you can do yourself as well is uh, cutting up, you know, building dissectors for different protocols that you've never seen before. Maybe one already exists in Wireshark, but try to do it yourself. Mm -hmm. No, it's so cool. That stuff is like... Being able to do that kind of thing is just like a skill that you just, it's its very difficult to teach. You just have to kind of like live it, you know? And she definitely lived it for a lot of different things. Awesome. So yeah, hopefully we can talk to her more again soon. And, and yeah, amazing stuff. But yo, it's uh, getting real late, so we should uh, get offline now. Um, just give me one second here while I put our music on. But yeah, we will be back next week with, um, who is it? We have the the uh, blue team village from DefCon will be talking with us, um, oh, and then after that we will have our one year anniversary show. Thug Crowd has officially been on the air for one year um, as Thug Crowd. We even we have an thing, free but... Bitcoin to everybody. By the way, if you, if you <laughs> yes. click on this link and it's you got be... to cover taxes and everything, but yeah, <laughs> it's going to be quite go... a celebration. So we just gonna yeah. need you to go our website and uh to watch the stream there and the whole time it's open just leave the browser open <laughs> yeah go to bed and uh yeah it'll be great you yeah, must has personally donated cryptocurrency yes <laughs> <laughs> Elon.
Good stuff. But yeah, we'll, we'll definitely do uh, a nice. Talk about what we want to do in the future. So yeah, definitely uh, be here in the next two weeks. It's March 26th. Um, so yeah, we have one more show and then that, and then probably a little break because we're tired. So anyways, um, let's, uh, let's call it a night because it's really late. So um, thanks everybody for hanging out and listening. Um, DM us if you have any questions and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye. Peace. Peace. Peace.